The Sisu Way with Scott McGee, episode 28, The Way to Breathe, with Patrick McEwen. The Obstacle in Our Path Once upon a time, there was a king who controlled a large kingdom. One night, when it was very dark, he had a large boulder placed in the center of one of the major roadways. The king awoke early the next morning and hid in the trees alongside the road. He wanted to watch what people would do when they came upon the large rock block in their path. The first to come down the road were the wealthy merchants and courtiers of the king's court who were going to work. When they saw the large rock blocking their path, they all stopped to complain loudly but did nothing to move the rock. They blamed the king for not taking care of the roads for which they paid taxes to have maintained. They felt the king was negligent in not keeping the roads clear. When they were done complaining, they walked around the boulder and went on their way. An hour passed and along came a peasant carrying a large basket of vegetables he was taking to the market to sell. When he approached the boulder, he laid down his basket and tried desperately to move the rock out of the way. Unable to move the stone, he walked into the woods and found a large piece of wood which he could use as a lever. After much straining, he and his lever succeeded in rolling the boulder out of the way and onto the side of the road. When he turned to pick up his basket of vegetables, he noticed a beautiful silk purse lying in the center of the road where the boulder had been. Upon opening the purse, he saw 50 gold coins and a handwritten note signed by the king. The king's note indicated the gold coins were a reward for the person or persons who took the initiative and responsibility to remove the boulder from the roadway, clearing the path. The peasant learned what many of us never understand. Every obstacle presents an opportunity to improve our condition. This is the Sisu Way, a show about grit, character, gratitude, service, and what it means to choose strength. My name is Scott McGee. I am a mindful warrior on a path of gratitude and service who loves to connect with unconquerable souls. Now the moral of the story is, every obstacle we come across gives us an opportunity to improve our circumstances. Be the one to create opportunity for others. Don't get caught in the excuse web of anonymity. Take ownership of everything in your world. And don't walk around the boulder and complain about it. Do something about it. The next level of thought seeds I would like to water and shed some light on is, what are the mental boulder, what are the mental boulders in your way of thinking? Has your past or your culture put a boulder in your thinking path? Do you have the thoughts of, well, this is just the way it has been? My goal of this episode is to get you to have the strong and open-mindedness to not only see the rock in your path, but to move it. There may be a massive information reward underneath it. With that, thought seeds need more than water and light. They need air. In our culture, we prioritize health and fitness with an emphasis and education on hydration and nutrition, but we can last days and weeks respectively without either of those. It is air, it is oxygen that we wouldn't last minutes without. My guest, Patrick McEwen, author of The Oxygen Advantage, is on a journey to remind us how to breathe. Nothing affects our life, the beginning and the end, more than our breathing. This episode will empower you to make improvements across several mind and body systems to recalibrate you to your strongest potential. Simply put, 
Breathe better to think, feel, and perform better. Mastering your breath is the path to finding peace. And this episode is the roadmap. International best-selling author and master instructor Patrick McEwen is the creator of the Oxygen Advantage technique and author of the book, The Oxygen Advantage. Over the last 15 years, he has trained more than 7,500 people around the world to safely challenge their bodies and produce positive changes from delayed lactic acid and fatigue, improved uh, aerobic capacity, increased lung capacity, and the reduction of risk of injury to uh, one of my favorite, improved psychological preparedness. But that is only part of his bio. You have had life-changing moments that set you on this calling. You have been transformed not only by your asthma, which we will get into as it is a pivotal moment, but by three simple techniques. Breathing lightly, merging with your inner body, and bringing your attention into the present moment. So let me, let me ask you this one question. I'm going to ask you, let me break it into two. The information in this podcast and the message in your books, um, the benefits of light breathing uh, should be common knowledge. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it's not? It's a good question. Um, I think what happened with, in terms of the breath, human beings, we often believe that more is better. But we have to realize that food, just look at food, more food does not necessarily mean it's better. We need a certain amount, and we need a certain amount of air, we need a certain amount of water to survive. Yoga, when it was first developed over about two and a half thousand years ago, it was all about subtle breathing, and it was all about breathing light. But now, oftentimes, we have this belief in the Western world that if we breathe hard, we increase oxygen delivery to the cells. But that's not true. If you were walking down the street and if you see some guy and he's feeling breathless just walking, you're going to say, number one, he's not fit, and number two, he's not healthy. When we're stressed, we breathe hard. When we're calm, when we're focused, when we're meditative, we breathe lightly. When we have a good good night's sleep, it's all about breathing light. An elite athlete, they can perform intense physical exercise with relatively light breathing. So with breathing, less is more. But yeah, it's true. You know, many people say to me, and they have this belief, I've met people with depression going for a walk along the seaside, breathing hard because they think they're getting more oxygen to the brain. But it's the absolute opposite that's taking place. And that's what we need to explore. And this is something that we're definitely going to dive into. And I'm going to break it down in just a quick second. But there's also another question I wanted to ask you, and that is, Obviously, improving people's ability to essentially bring oxygen to the brain. Mm-hmm. How good does it feel to feel so passionately about something that is so good for other people? Because I think your, what your mm-hmm. career path and what you're doing is just a massive way to... I don't, I don't like to say boost people's lives because mm-hmm. that's not what we're doing. We're, we're more like boosting backwards to what your way you're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Well, Scott, if I was to give any advice to some teenager, um, is to find a job that you absolutely love to do. But I came into this by total accident. I went down the wrong path initially. 
I have a degree in economics and social sciences. I went into the corporate world. I was highly stressed in it. But at the time, I had bad asthma. And I also had sleep problems from, you know, from about 12 years of age and going into my early 20s. My sleep was waking up very tired. I was always a mouth breather. And nobody during that time had told me to breathe through the nose. So it was in 1997, 1998, I read a newspaper article, The Importance of Nose Breathing. And within two to three days, I started taping my mouth closed, breathing through my nose during sleep. And I woke up within two days feeling alert. Um, you know, it, it's just, I was directed life through, and it comes back to that story about the boulder in the road, that sometimes you have an obstacle in your life. And sometimes we have to realize that we have to follow our own intuition and we have to follow a gut feeling and that life, there's an intelligence there. And I don't want to sound too new age or anything like that, but things often happen for a reason. And sometimes we don't see the silver lining until after the fact that, you know, when something is presenting to us with a challenge and I had challenges hmm. like concentration, anybody who is mouth breathing, you don't have good focus and concentration because your sleep is affected. And we need, to, we need to have good quality sleep. And I remember it, you know, going to high school. For me to, to study, I had to study double the length of time of my peers. It wasn't because I was stupid. It was the fact that I didn't have the resilience to focus. And I had to change that, but I changed that through my breath. And the first thing was looking at sleep. Well, that's, so uh, I'm very um, intentful, if that's a word, with the stories and quotes and stuff I choose at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. And so while that, um, you know, that story has many, many meanings, I also chose it because of, I think for a lot of us, and it relates back to my question that I asked you earlier, was that we have this belief that it's, this is the way it's been, this is what I always do, this is what I see people, mm -hmm. other athletes doing, yeah. you know, and so you have this like mental boulder that is in your way. So not only... Am I hoping that people can listen to this and be mindful of that or pay attention to it and then bring some self-awareness to the actual boulder, but then mm -hmm. also understand that, that they can regulate that boulder? Mm -hmm. so. Totally. Like, that's the one thing about the breath. We have voluntary control over it. You know, we're breathing is an involuntary activity, but we can change it. Within three to four minutes, you can open up your nose by holding your breath. Within three to four minutes, you can improve your blood circulation. And... I would be happy to give your listeners simple exercises because ultimately it's all about put it into practice and see does it make a difference. Yep. People yep. who are breathing hard and people who are breathing fast, they're more likely to be in a state of agitation, their sleep is affected, their focus is affected, and even simply they have cold hands. You have cold hands not because of the traditional explanation is a warm heart. Cold hands because the peripheral blood vessels are constricting due to breathing too much air and all of these things we're going to, I'm going to systematically break down for you guys. But I also want to point out that I guess the breathing through your nose and taping your mouth, just mm -hmm. those, just those Yes. for a lot of people, that's a boulder mm -hmm. in their mind. Mm -hmm. And so I guarantee by the end of this podcast, you guys are going to be closing your mouth and mm -hmm. highly considering taping your mouth shut at, mm -hmm. At night. For sleep. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, but it's not crazy. You know, it's weird to me that that is considered crazy, but lap bands aren't. 
Mm-hmm. Like, let me cut you open and put a little band around your intestines and gut. Yes, and that's yes, accepted. Yes, yes, yeah. All right. Yeah. So <clears throat> the way I'm going to break this down is on page 172, I'm, I'm using the sentence that you wrote on, on there. And I think, I don't know if all the books, the page numbers are the same. They should be fairly consistent. Okay. But you wrote, the breath is the bridge between the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. And so reading through your book, um, I was highly invested in, you know, page I, you know, all the mm-hmm. way up to around 152. Mm-hmm. And then around uh, 152 or chapter eight, when you started getting into finding the zone, mm-hmm. then then you got me. Mm-hmm. At that point in time, I'm like, all right, let's get it. But we're going to get into that a little bit later. We're going to earn our way there mm-hmm. because I definitely want to, to break down the breath before we get into that stuff. And so uh, this is how we're going to get there. We're going to work through the breath and then get into the bridge between the mind and the body. So we're going to start with the breath. And so we've mentioned that how much and what you eat matters, what you drink matters, how and your quality of sleep matters, even how you think, all those things matter. Mm-hmm. How, like matter to like any successful person. So it still does trip me out that breath isn't like a primary uh, source of consideration there. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I respect and applaud your journey to do that. And hopefully by having a podcast like this, I'm kind of being a little piece of boosting the journey. Here. Yeah, of course. It's great. To, great always to reach out. You definitely need to get on Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe that'll help. <laughs> maybe, maybe someday we keep, keep doing, yeah, keep yeah. doing, keep chugging away. Um, but how much you breathe, uh, and, or how you breathe and how much you breathe matters. And so you have this, I had, it was kind of brought up earlier, but like what happened to us before and how did this happen? And some of the stuff you had mentioned was, um, like uh, our homes are heated, we have stress, mm-hmm. our lifestyles aren't very hard anymore. Excessive our, talking, part of our work. Part of it, yeah, uh, excessive talking. And a belief also. There's a belief out there that the more air you breathe, the better it is. Another thing, overheated homes. Mm-hmm. Stuffy environments. Um, we revert to primitive ways of breathing if we're in a very hot environment. And a dog is a typical example. You know a dog on a hot day, dog will pant. It doesn't have sweat glands per se, so it uses, it passes the air across the tongue to regulate body temperature. But also for us, um, and even coming down to a very young child, you could have a very protective parent. Overly protective, they keep the baby too warm. The baby already has a naturally high metabolism, so their temperature is higher generally, you know, than ours, they've got a higher fast rate, faster breathing, we wrapped them up too much. And, you know, typically you'd often call that would be something like smotherly love. But in terms of breathing, it's not ideal. The very crux of breathing through the nose, the entire animal kingdom do it, with the exception of a dog on a hot day. I looked through veterinary textbooks, I was trying to find out which animals actually mouth breathe. I could find three diving birds, um, a gannet, a penguin, and a pelican. And the only other animals that I could find who were mouth-breathing were animals who were sick. A horse, a lamb, a cow, a sheep, a goat, a chicken. 
So farm animals, when they're very sick, they revert to mouth breathing. Now for a human being, all of our ancestors were nasal breathers. If you look at the shape of our ancestors, the shape of their faces, it was a broad facial structure and it had two large nostrils, primarily for regulating breathing before it came into the body. And even just this, Dr. Morris Cottle was an ENT back, an ear, nose and throat consultant here in the United States. And he was really well regarded. He said the human nose performs 30 functions in the human body. I would say this, if you mouth breathe during the day or during sleep, you're likely to gas out too soon during physical exercise and your mind is likely to be agitated and your sleep is affected. There we go. Now, I almost feel that chronic overbreathing should be a diagnosis. Yes, it, it is. It and, is? But it's often missed. It's okay. a Cochrane review. So in medicine, 9.5% of the population are diagnosed as having hyperventilation sy- syndrome. Now, with asthma, it increases to 30%. But with people with anxiety, it increases to 75%. So we have to bear in mind that sometimes a doctor will say that, yes, the person with asthma is breathing through their open mouth and they're breathing faster, and that's because of their asthma. It's true that if your airways are constricting, you feel you're not going to get enough air, so you're going to breathe harder. But if you breathe harder, it feeds back into the condition. Anxiety is the same. How do we breathe when we're anxious? We breathe relatively fast. We sigh more. It's upper chest. We breathe that bit harder. But how about if we're breathing like that all the time? So it is true. Stress changes our breathing. We develop breathing habits that those breathing habits feed back into stress. That's why during meditation, you know, your warriors, if they were preparing for something, they're merging mind and breath together. They're not going to be hyperventilating. They're going to be bringing their breathing volume down, lowering their metabolism, reducing the respiratory rate, reducing the tidal volume, and they will bring themselves into a moment of absolute concentration. Because concentration is when the activity and the mind merge as one. And we have an issue now in today's present age. To give you an example, in 2002, Microsoft did a study with 3,000 Western individuals. I think it was in Canada they did it. They said that the average attention span was 12 seconds. They replicated that study either in 2012 or 2013. And they said the attention span of the Western person is now 8 seconds. They said this is a problem because a goldfish has an attention span of 9 seconds. Now, you'll Google that, Microsoft Goldfish Study. So what does attention span mean? Attention span means your capacity to focus on a subject without distraction. It's concentration. Whereas if your mind is all over the place, you can't work effectively because you're not having all of your attention on what you're doing. You, you can't even relate to other people because you're not even relating to the other per- person. You're stuck in your head. So when the mind is all over the place, we can't be productive, we can't be focused, and we're more likely to make mistakes. But what's more, when the mind is agitated, mental health is affected. Now, I really feel that in terms of the why has our attention span dropped by 25% in 10 years, it's because of the internet. So it is because of the distractions that text messaging... Mm -hmm social media and i'm saying like i use all of that too but we have to be selective and we all we also have to realize that too much of it is not going to be good and it's the kids who are growing up with that 
So, you know, there's going to be a balance there. And this is where the mind comes in because currently the brain is trained to be distracted. All of those things, social media, your social alerts, your text messaging, your emails, everything is taking our attention, making the brain distracted. How do you train the brain to be focused? You follow the breath. Because when you're following your breathing, when you're merging with the inner body, you're deliberately having your attention on the breath for a period of time to change the brain. And as a result, then your capacity to think and focus improves. That part we are going to expand upon. Okay, cool. Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a great topic. No, absolutely. Yeah. And I feel like, so what, what, what I'd like to do is, is start, start, you'll see me start kind of big and with outside mm-hmm. and then we're going to slowly bring the focus into the body like big and then we're going to move smaller, smaller, smaller into cells and then kind of back out. Cool. So to start, since we're starting outside the body, kind of, um, I'd like to talk about the oxygen paradox. Yes. And if you think you should have been, this should have been the, the carbon dioxide advantage. <laughs> well, people think carbon dioxide is, is a waste gas. So nobody would read the book. Yeah. So yeah. it had to be all about oxygen. Um, but ultimately, we do need oxygen to get delivered to the cells. Yeah. You know, if you think of it, we take in a breath of fresh air. That oxygen passes into the lungs, passes into the blood, is picked up by hemoglobin. So hemoglobin is a protein within the red blood cell. And that carries 98% of our oxygen. There's only about 2% of oxygen that's dissolved directly in the blood. Now, the real question here is, how do we get the hemoglobin to release oxygen to the cells? And the answer there is carbon dioxide. But if we're breathing too hard, we get rid of too much CO2, carbon dioxide, from the lungs. And this, in turn, will reduce it in the blood. And when the levels of CO2 in the blood are reduced, hemoglobin holds on to oxygen more readily. So if you want, you know, I see people coming in with chronic fatigue. I see them coming in with exhaustion. I measure their blood oxygen saturation. It's normal. The problem is not that they don't have enough oxygen in the blood. The problem is that the oxygen isn't getting from the blood to the cells. And for that, you need carbon dioxide. So when people say, breathe in as much oxygen as you can and breathe out as much carbon dioxide as you can, they fail to realize that in order for the red blood cells to release oxygen in the first place, we need CO2. Now, that was discovered back in 1904. So that's discovered 114 years ago by a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr, B-O-H-R. And it's known as the Bohr effect. And basically, it's simple. As CO2 increases in the blood, blood pH drops, and the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen reduces. So the red blood cells release the oxygen in the presence of CO2. So how do you increase CO2? This is the question you slow down your breathing. And you slow down your breathing to the point that you feel that you're not getting enough air. Because the stimulus to breathe is actually carbon dioxide. There is so much oxygen in the human body that the ventilation, that the stimulus to breathe, every breath that we take isn't driven by oxygen. It's only when we go up into high altitude of, say, 2,500 meters, which is 8,000 feet, um, I, th- I think in meters, so mm. I have to convert it. So maybe 8,000 feet, 9,000 feet. Does oxygen drive your breathing? So your regular everyday breathing is determined by central chemoreceptors in the brain that are monitoring only CO2. So every breath that we take, the body is breathing to get rid of excess CO2. But the key word here is excess. Don't breathe too hard because you get rid of too much of it. 
Now, what does that mean on an everyday basis? If your body gets used to breathing too hard, say, for instance, you have an individual who's under prolonged stress, and this was first discovered back in the 1870s, 1871, by an American physician called Da Costa, D-A-C-O-S-T-A, and he was working in the American Civil War. And he noticed that when soldiers came back from the front line because of the stress of combat, that they exhibited breathlessness, they exhibited fatigue, uh, they exhibited you know, exhaustion, and it took them such a long time to recover. So, but the Costa syndrome is actually hyperventilation syndrome. It was only in 1937 that the, the word hyperventilation syndrome is used. The human being is not able for long-term stress. Throughout our evolution, we always had a short-term stress you know, it was fight or flight, we got into a fight, it was short-term. An animal, it's short-term. But our modern society is long-term stress. We're not able for that. And that's why I think the breath is really important. Because the breath is through focusing on your breathing. And also, by slowing down your breath to create air hunger, you're able to reverse the, the, the effects, the negative effects of stress, because stress is making us breathe hard and fast. But if we're breathing hard and fast, not only is less oxygen getting delivered to the cells, but also our blood vessels constrict. Because the second function of CO2 is it's a vasodilator. It opens up the blood vessels. So if I was to say to your listeners, you know, practice this for a minute. Focus on the airflow coming into your nose. Focus on the airflow leaving your nose. And as you feel the airflow coming in and out of your nose, really start softening the breath. So slow down the speed of the air as it's coming into your nose, and at the top of the breath, bring a total feeling of relaxation to the body, so that you have a very slow, relaxed, gentle breath out. The objective is that you're breathing, you're taking less air into your body than what you feel you need. You always want to have a relatively short breath in, and a relatively long, relaxed breath out. It's the long, relaxed breath out that activates the relaxation response. Now, when you do that, you will have increased watery saliva in the mouth. Increased watery saliva in the mouth is a sign that you're activating the parasympathetic response. In other words, the body's relaxation. So just as when we get stressed, our mouth gets dry, that then the body is going into sympathetic. It's going into drive. It's going into fight or flight. We want, fight or flight is fine for short term. That's fine, mm-hmm. you know. It's the long term. We want to be able to counteract that um, and we do it through the breath because we can influence the autonomic nervous system by breathing. And really, it's all about slowing down the breath to get our hunger, to increase CO2 in the blood, to open up your blood vessels, to activate the body's relaxation response, and also to increase oxygen delivery to the cells. I'm glad you brought it up because one of my questions was doing the the uh, breathe right to mm-hmm. breathe light to breathe right, yeah. which is basically you just went over. Yeah. One of my questions was if you were kind of, I'm going to say the word starving yourself for air because yes. you're not necessarily starving yourself because yes. you're fine. Yes. Yeah. Just th- that process alone, would that put somebody into a sympathetic state? It could do. So this is where the interesting thing is. It's a really fine line and it will also depend on the person. First of all, we have to realize that when you slow down your breathing, your oxygen levels are actually going to remain fairly normal. Because when you slow down your breathing to create air hunger, the air hunger is because of an increase of CO2. So it's not that we're depriving the body of oxygen. Now, it is different when we do the strong breath holding. 
there we purposely lower blood, blood oxygen mm. saturation. But with reduced breathing, slow breathing, we don't. We want to slow down the breath that we can stay in relaxation. And that's the fine line. And that's where it takes with some practice. So it is normal that, you know, people slow down their breathing. But then if they go a little bit too far, they tip into sympathetic. Yep. And we don't want you to get stressed. So anytime an individual is getting stressed, take a rest and then come back to it again. Um, so it is a fine line, but it's very much achievable. And normally, anyway, if one meditates, breathing naturally slows down. Your warriors in a state of meditation, their breathing will probably disappear. And a leash warrior would be breathing maybe one to two breaths per minute that they have such a control over body and mind. And also, it's a really good... You know, I was talking with um, Master Jennifer Lee, and she does sword fighting, and she's got eight black belts, so she's a grandmaster in martial arts. And she was telling me that during competition, when two opponents are fighting, judges are watching to see, can they see an opponent breed? Because if the opponent is starting to breathe hard, it's not a good sign. And you will see this even in mm. boxing. You will see it in different, in fighting. If you start to see a boxer and they're gassing out, they're losing breath and their mouth is open and they're breathing hard, you know it's only going to be a round or two before the legs go jelly. So the legs are going jelly. When you're gassing out, you're pushing yourself too hard in that you can have diaphragmatic fatigue. And if the breathing muscles fatigue, blood is stolen from the legs to feed the breathing muscles and jelly legs kick in. So we can relate, yep. you know, that yep. kind of way to, di to different things in, in terms of not just the mind, but sports performance as well. One little thing I want to point out that I think will help people in the uh, breathe light to breathe right or to, just to reiterate what he just said, when you're sitting there and you're breathing through your nose and you're not taking large, quote unquote, deep breaths. Mm -hmm. So you're basically not breathing much, but you are. Very, yes. very light. So yes. another thing I want to point about, out about that. One, he said, the, and this is something I've talked about on the show, that the exhale is a parasympathetic yes. response. Um, number two, I think it's very important, and again, to tie in, to remember to relax your shoulders, mm -hmm. relax yes. your traps, relax yes. your face, yes, relax your thoughts, and just relax into your breath. Yes, yes. Just... Just the fact of focusing on your breath will help you relax. Yes. So I think that's an important thing to point out. Don't freak out because you're trying to breathe less. Yes, yes. And, you know, when people start off, when the mind is very agitated, you know, there's an emotional kind of build up and the individual, you know, you bring your attention from the mind onto the breath, but then, of course, the mind wanders off again. And then you bring your attention back onto the breath. And sometimes people get frustrated because... They feel that they need to have a quiet mind, but that's not what it's about. The act is actually taking your attention out of the mind onto your breathing. And if you notice that your mind is wandering and wandering and wandering, you'll get even so much more out of this. But be patient. Yep. And the other thing is that when you're slowing down the breath to get air hunger, physiologically, you're increasing blood flow to the brain. And also, that air hunger, the mind is more likely to be anchored onto the breath. So when you're purposely slowing down the breath, that you're feeling that you would like to take in more air, you're slowing down your breathing, um, you're just reducing the air intake, your mind is really anchored on the air hunger, now you're training the brain. 
and you're training the brain that's structural, like the brain changes. And what does this mean in everyday life? A pilot in the sky, to give you this example, a pilot in the sky, the aircraft, as we hear one go overhead, mm -hmm. is flying by itself. The pilot isn't necessary. But the pilot is there when things go wrong. And it's when things are going wrong, that pilot has to be absolutely focused. And that's the capacity to control your mind. And this then is tying back into the breath. Like one of the best things I ever did 20 years ago, focusing on my breath. Because now, even when the situation, and if you, I don't know if you can swear, but we say like when the shit hits the fan, you're able to remain controlled. That's what it's about. I think, and this, is, this has been resonating through this entire podcast, but regardless of your circumstance, especially under stress, you can yes. just mind your thoughts and mind your breath. Yes, totally. And there seems to be like a, a resonating tone on everything from POWs yeah. to cancer to, yes. I mean, the most stressful circumstances brings out that in more of a highlight. Yes, absolutely. And again, we really need to be slowing down the breath for trauma and we need to be improving sleep. So when I was doing a podcast with, um, there were guys, Green Berets, special forces that came back from Afghanistan and they had post-traumatic stress disorder. They said one of the biggest things that helped them was actually taping their mouth for sleep. It's interesting, this is starting to get some attention now, even though there are studies there for 30 years. Um, Stanford Medical School, they did a research about two, three months ago, and they had guys block their noses for 10 days, both during the day and also during sleep. And one of the first things that they noticed was that their sleep quality reduced. They weren't getting down into deep sleep, that they were staying in light sleep. Now, you know it yourself, if we're stressed, you know, there is a greater tendency that you're twisting and turning all night, that your mind is active. But how about somebody with trauma? That's how they are all the time. How do we make them and how do we help them deep sleep? Well, first of all, what I'd say is if you have insomnia, if you have, you know, if you're waking up feeling unrefreshed, breathe slowly and lightly for 20 minutes before you go to sleep. Wear paper tape over your lips. But first of all, if you feel a little bit apprehensive about wearing paper tape across your lips going to sleep, do it for 20 minutes when you're watching a movie. So watch a movie wearing the tape first. Just kind of get used to it. It will be the best night's sleep ever. You cannot have a good night's sleep if you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. You're more likely to wake up, you're waking up fatigued and also to have agitation of the mind. <laughs> we're going to get into that later but i don't want to lose this thought it's mm -hmm. also really good to tape your mouth late at night if you get late night um um munchies <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> it'll stop you from overeating at night um so going back into the, the outside thing and uh breathing light and mm -hmm. um it would behoove me to speak about this um with the wim hof breathing yes um, and box breathing or combat breathing. Yes. Right. And then, or apnea breathing. Yes. So all, all of these things are out there. Right? Yes. So I want to say one of my first, like really big, like jump in the pool things with breath was Wim yes. Hof method. Yes. And so when I started studying Wim Hof and I started studying, um, your work, they appeared to me as being completely contradictive. Yes, but they're not. No, absolutely. Yeah. But this is for everybody. So I've, yes. I've, I've dove in a lot. 
Uh-huh. But I also want to, I mean, you're here, I want to explain the difference so yes. we can educate people. Yes, yes, yeah. So well, let's start. Yep. So, so I think the Wim Hof is a wonderful technique. Um, and a couple of points about it. Wim, Wim Hof is, you hyperventilate for 30, for 30 breaths, and that gets rid of a lot of carbon dioxide. That the CO2 in the blood can be reducing from normal as 40 millimeter of mercury pressure, maybe down to 15 millimeters. It's a huge drop of carbon dioxide. Earlier on, I said that CO2 is the drive to breathe. If you really breathe hard and you're getting rid of a lot of CO2, you don't need, you don't feel the inclination to breathe. So as a result, then you'll have a very long breath hold because the alarm to breathe has been depleted. This then allows you to lower your blood oxygen saturation a lot lower. Now, the hyperventilation, the 30 breaths, doesn't increase blood oxygen saturation. Um, even if you, look at the, if you look at the science in the Wim Hof, if you, if you look at Cox's paper, SpO2 was 100% all the way through the hyperventilation, both when the individual started. So we have to bear in mind that breathing hard doesn't increase the amount of oxygen that's bound by hemoglobin. Breathing hard gets rid of carbon dioxide then you can hold your breath for a lot longer because the alarm to breathe has been depleted. That allows you to achieve a stronger hypoxic response. So the Wim Hof is hypocapnic, low CO2, hypoxic, low oxygen. The oxygen advantage is hypercapnic, high CO2, hypoxic, low oxygen. And the benefits of it are in terms of we're forcing the body into a state of acidosis. You know, from the oxygen advantage point of view, we're doing a strong breath hold, carbon dioxide increases in the blood, um, that forms carbonic acid, it dissociates into hydrogen ion and bicarbonate. So you've got an increased hydrogen ion from the CO2. Now at the same time, I don't want to go too technical here, but maybe some of your listeners, are, they're sciencey. Um, if you do a strong breath hold, you're lowering your blood oxygen saturation. It means the tissues now aren't getting sufficient oxygen. So the hydrogen ion coming from this tissue doesn't get oxidized to form water. Hydrogen ion that's coming from the tissue then will associate with pyruvic acid to form lactic acid, and then it dissociates into hydrogen ion and lactate. So when we're doing strong breath holding, we're completely disturbing the blood acid base balance. It's almost that we're flooding the body with hydrogen ion, and we're doing that to increase the buffering capacity inside in the muscle. Now we need good buffering inside in the muscle because it's your buffering that latches onto the hydrogen ion to reduce acidity. So lactic acid, we can delay lactic acid and fatigue by improved buffering capacity inside in the muscle compartment. Now what's more, the Wim Hof method is, is a, a great example of a stressor to the body. You're stressing the body out to get the body to make some adaptations. And in Cox's paper, it talks about individuals with autoimmune diseases rheumatoid arthritis, irritable bowel syndrome, etc. They take medications, and these medications are designed to stress the body, that the body makes adaptations. But these medications are very expensive. Now, I've worked with some individuals. Their medication bill was €48,000 wow. per year. So this is talking about $65,000 in around, you know, with exchange mm. rates. And not only are the, are the drugs expensive, but the drugs also can have serious side effects. The Cox's paper, because the research is new, this is all new stuff. Can we provoke the human body by stressing it that the human body adapts to be able to improve immune functioning? 
and this is huge um you know in terms of coming down the road and we would love to see more research here in this one now can the oxygen advantage when we're doing breath holding if you go below an spo2 of below 88 percent you're in severe hypoxia you don't necessarily have to drop your your blood oxygen saturation down to 50 percent as a stress even shorter breath holds will do it for you there's a couple of things number one with the wim hof method yeah you're not oxygenating your blood so just yes however i think for some people visualizing that happening has a healing component yes yes so there is it's almost like a placebo effect but it doesn't matter if it's making you feel good there's probably other things that are happening there with hyperventilation in terms of release of trauma Um, because if you look at holotropic breath work or you know the whole hyperventilation you're almost that you're bringing in the body into that fight or flight and there could be and i don't know what's going on there and i don't know if anybody really knows in terms of dealing with trauma but the one thing i would say is if you have somebody with really poor breathing be careful hyperventilating because you mightn't have the resilience to be able to cope with it um and the other thing is it's fine doing hyperventilation but don't make it part of your normal everyday breathing patterns because you know, that's going to deplete oxygen delivery to the cells as opposed to increase it in the long term. There, um, I'm looking it up on my phone right now, Uh but before I forget, I want to talk about, you said like when you're doing the breath holds, Mm -hmm. the alarm to breathe goes off. Yes. So that alarm, I'm assuming comes from the little part of your brain in your brainstem. Yes. Now, that alarm that goes off. First of all, who's, who decides where that, what, who, sets, who sets that alarm? And number two, sure. can you, um, through doing the oxygen advantage protocols, yes. increase that yes. and then have it, that be shown doing Wim Hof breathing? Okay. So the alarm is basically a cluster of cells in the brainstem. And the cluster of cells are the central chemoreceptors, which are monitoring CO2. Now, here is where I would say is never hyperventilate before you get into water. Because if you hyperventilate on the side of the pool, you're depleting carbon dioxide and the drive to breathe is CO2. So if you breathe out CO2 from the lungs, you're going to reduce it in the blood. The brain isn't going to send a message to breathe because the brain is waiting for CO2 levels to come back up towards normal. But if you've Mm. breathed out so much CO2, CO2 in the blood now is abnormally low. So the brain doesn't feel the need to breathe. But what happens is the individual gets into water and that they stay underwater, but their oxygen levels start to drop. But they don't feel the need to breathe because its CO2 is being depleted and they can pass out underwater and they have underwater blackout. People have drowned. So... We don't, I don't do the hyperventilation beforehand um, because the approach is just that little bit different in terms of it's a hypercaptic response. Now, why am I doing that? Elite athletes have technically, you know, the terminology would be a reduced ventilatory response to CO2. In other words, they can push themselves hard and they don't gas out. So they have good physical stamina. Now, what I do is I do breath holding to change the brain's Um, sensitivity to carbon dioxide so i purposely and deliberately increase co2 in the blood from 40 to plus 50 
which doesn't sound a lot, but it's huge. If you went for a sprint, your CO2 in the blood won't increase by all that much because your ventilation increases proportionately. So we deliberately hold the breath to increase CO2 in the blood to change the brain's reaction to CO2. So we're re we reduce the sensitivity of the body to the accumulation of carbon dioxide and that that translates into improved physical fitness. And the other thing I was going to um, talk about, you brought up trauma and, yes. and grief when yes. it comes to Wim Hof breathing. And I found yes. that part to be very powerful. Yes. When I did, uh, when I really went for it, let yeah. it go, and I chased it and just let it go. Yes. And not just my exhale. I mean, yes. let it go. I had an extreme reaction to it mm -hmm. that I think has like, I don't know, it took something away from me and now I, I feel better. Yes, yes. Don't know what it is. Yes. But it was, so I started looking into it. And so <laughs> mm -hmm. there is a TED Talk by Max, looks like S-T-R-O-M, Strom, Strom, okay. uh, called Breathe to Heal. Okay. And so in this TED Talk, he talks about how in breath work like this, a lot of times in males within mm -hmm. three to five minutes is when grief comes up. Yes. So it's a fascinating TED talk and yes. I, I wanted to share and that's yes. something. So Yeah, great. So another thing that I, I, the way I've looked at it and tell me if I'm wrong is well, Wim Hof breathing is almost like a workout where oxygen advantages is a lifestyle. Yes. Um, a workout in terms of if you hyperventilate, yep. you are going to target the respiratory muscles. Um, but we will do it a little bit different. Yep. In terms of we do breath holding too, and we have the individual relax as they hold their breath. As you hold your breath and carbon dioxide is increasing, the brain will send a message to breathe. So you will have involuntary contractions of your breathing muscles. And your muscles are, are moving, you know, you'll have your intercostals, you'll have your diaphragm, is moving in response to the signaling from the brain. But you continue holding your breath, you're giving your, work, your breathing muscles a workout. The other thing is, for really good diaphragmatic functioning, and we do need diaphragmatic functioning, number one for the emotions, but also for improved gas exchange in the blood. So the point here that I'm going to make is when you breathe through your nose, your nose imposes a resistance that's two to three times that of the mouth. So your nose is adding an extra load onto your breathing muscles. So what I'd say is, if you're doing physical training, at least try to do 50 to 60% of your physical training with your mouth closed. This way, your quality of the breath is going to be deeper because mouth breathing is fast, shallow breathing. But if you look at the human lungs, most of the blood concentration is in the lower parts. When you breathe through your nose, you naturally breathe deeper into the lungs. But also by breathing through your nose, you pick up a gas called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide redistributes the blood throughout the lungs and nitric oxide, nasal breathing, it improves oxygen uptake by between 10 and 15%. So mouth breathing is fast and shallow, and his nose breathing is slow and deep. Now, people talk about breathing using the diaphragm. You cannot use the diaphragm effectively if you breathe through an open mouth. If you take a look at your chest, Scott, look down at your chest and breathe through your mouth. So anybody who breathes through the mouth, if your listeners were to do it, they will see that mouth breathing is directly linked with activation of the upper chest. Upper chest breathing is fight or flight. It is true to take a deep breath. I don't even like it, the way it feels right now. But a deep breath. 
<laughs> a deep breath just means use your diaphragm. So yeah, so the Wim Hof method, it is, it is a workout. And, but you can also do, there's different ways of doing it. So we too want to get, we want to activate the diaphragm muscle and we do it by nasal breathing. I want to improve functional breathing patterns. And that's something that we need to be talking about because many athletes have dysfunctional breathing. I work with Olympic athletes and I see breathing patterns that are holding an athlete back. But the, the Olympic athlete, they have nutritionists, they have a psychologist, they have strength and conditioning coaches, but they don't have anybody looking at their breathing. So you have an athlete with dysfunctional breathing patterns, but you, if that's going to hold them back because functional breathing means stabilization, using the diaphragm for stabilization of the spine. If you don't have functional breathing, you don't have functional movement. So motor control, the ability to move, is enhanced by your breathing. And we need to be looking at both functional breathing and also at um, what we would call hypoxic, hypercaptic breathing. I want to break down the mechanics, yes. the physical mechanics, from just outside the nose all the way down yes. in a second. But I, I also want to, first of all, doing the, you, you, you kind of laughed, but I was sitting here doing the mouth beating. <laughs> okay. And um, I really did not like it. Yes. You know, yeah. I was just, it yeah. felt nasty. Oh my yes. God. It felt like cheap and like, I didn't, I didn't like it. So Because you're a nose breeder. But for me, I was between the age of, I have no idea when I started mouth breathing, but when you've got asthma, inflammation in the lungs, which will be characteristic of asthma, travels up to the nose. So people who have asthma have a greater tendency to have nasal obstruction. When their nose is stuffy, they then mouth breathe, so they're taking cold, dry air into their lungs. But they continue breathing that way, but they've nothing to compare it against. You are an innate no nasal breather, and you can compare it when you switch to mouth breathing. You see that it's not good. But some of your listeners, in the studied literature now, up to 50% of children are breathing through an open mouth. For kids, it's adverse. I gave a talk to 100 dentists there last Thursday um, because they're looking into the mouth. They're concerned with craniofacial development. A child that has the mouth open, they're more, longer, more likely to develop a narrow facial structure. Their tongue isn't resting on the roof of the mouth. They tend to have narrow jaws, but they also have jaws that are set back on the airways. So a good airway is the size of your tongue. And if you have retronati, as I have from years of mouth breathing, the jaws are set back, so the airway is compromised. I'd never be an athlete because I don't have the physical structure to be. And if you look at really tough guys, look at their facial structure, you'll see that their jaws are really well-defined. And even if a cartoonist was doing a, a caricature of a male, you know, a military guy, mm. they'll have this big set of jaws. It's all about function because we need airway and airway is king. First of all, I'm not innate. I'm working hard at it. Okay. The, no, I mean, part of your work and is, I mean, just because you were coming on the show doesn't, didn't start my education. Sure. I've been into it for quite some time. Yes. Yep. And so it's something I've worked at and continuously improving on. Yes. So, yes. But what I mean by innate is that you are persistently nose breathing. So mm. you know to make the comparison between nasal breathing and mouth breathing. But you'll have people out there. They have their mouth open. No, so absolutely. Much. And that goes into, goes into my story is that I used to, I had my doubts. I remember uh, years ago seeing somebody tape their mouth at night. And I thought, what a weirdo. <laughs> and I just avoided it and walked around the boulder. <laughs> right? Sure, and so, sure. And so... Um, 
then I looked at it more with mm-hmm. an open mind. Yeah. I'm like, let me see what this is about. Yes. And then based on the way you articulated information and it wasn't really like you weren't selling anything. No, nothing it, to it sell. got my interest. Oh, sure. look at this. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's what got me to this end point where I'm, my habit is now stronger to breathe through my nose. Yes, totally. So speaking of, well, a couple, one more thing I want to talk about, and this is a, a question from my buddy, George Ryan, who's like a mentor of mine. Mm-hmm. I always say he's like me, but like in like 10 or 20 years of more experience. Mm-hmm. Um, he was LAPD SWAT for like 17 or 18 years. He's still with LAPD. Fascinating, brilliant guy. Mm-hmm. And heavily into breath work and meditation. In fact, he's read your book a few times. He's taken some, some courses. Cool. And so one of, the, one of the questions he wanted me to bring up was the box breathing and yes. how you felt about box breathing. Mm-hmm. And for the listener, box breathing, you, you, you picture a box. One part is inhale, yeah. hold, yeah. exhale, hold. Yes, yes, yes. Like, I think it's useful. I th- you know, I think any time that you're, you want to, to focus the mind, focusing on the breath is going to do it. So in one way, if you're taking your breath in and if you're holding, when you hold your breath, you're giving more time for oxygen actually to transfer into the blood. And then you have your breath out. And then I'm not sure if you do a breath hold after the breath out and you Mm. breathe back in again, you do a breath hold. You're taking your attention from the mind. So it's a very good way of settling the mind. And I think that's the purpose for it. Mm -hmm. Now, the question to ask is, how much air are you breathing during that point? Because you could take box breathing, that you could be breathing in very light for maybe four seconds or five seconds or six seconds. And then you do a breath hold for six seconds. And then you have a relaxed breath out for six seconds. And then you do another breath hold for six seconds. But all of that is good. You can enhance it a little bit, create air hunger. Because the air hunger is telling you CO2 is increasing in the blood. But say, for instance, if you were coming across a situation and you want to have recovery quick, so you run into a situation and you have to recover quickly. And if you were to aim, for example, your likelihood of getting the target is better when you have good recovery. We really need to be looking at how can we improve people's recovery. And there's a measurement that we use is called the bolt score. And the bolt score is a normal breath in, a normal breath out, and you hold your breath. You relax into your body and you time it in seconds until the first definite desire to breathe. Now, what that measurement tells you is it tells you your chemo sensitivity to carbon dioxide if you have a high bolt score your recovery will be better because you're running into a situation but you won't be as breathless in the first place your heart rate won't be so high so it's easier then for you to recover because you're able to cope with the the exercise etc so the chemo sensitivity is the same thing we were talking about earlier in the brain the alarm system the alert that's exactly it so really what you want to do is you want to be lowering the body should be able to cope with high CO2. Um, so if their body is, is, you know, has a low tolerance to carbon dioxide, it's called a low ventilator, or sorry, it's called a strong ventilatory response to CO2. In other words, if the body is very sensitive to a buildup of CO2, your breathing is hard and heavy. I also want to point out that we we're talking about box breathing. Yes. And this goes across a lot of different um, breathing genres. And that is, and this is sometimes I'm like, um, so what is our cadence and what is our volume? Like, what, yes. are we, what are we actually talking about here? Yes. Like even, and this is something I've recently kind of had like, like even the box breathing, like if, if we're both doing four count box breathing, mm-hmm. 
That could be a lot of different things. Yes. You could be taking a huge breath in yep. or you could be taking a light breath in. That's something that I think is, is something for people to kind of like pay attention to. Even the term yes. like, um, you know, take a deep breath. If you like that, just when people are stressed out, you always see that in yoga or like mm-hmm. different, yes. oh, just take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm like, well, isn't that kind of a sympathetic response? I mean, wouldn't, totally. it, be, wouldn't it be better to say, take a slow, yes. long exhale? Yes. If you want to activate the body's relaxation response, we want to breathe using the diaphragm, which is really the technically correct name for a deep breath. So a deep breath means, you know, if you were to look at the word deep, it just means far from the top, definition of it. Everybody knows the deep end of a swimming pool. You know, you're at the deep end, you look up, and you know at that point it's furthest from the top. So a deep breath is diaphragmatic breathing. The diaphragm is essential for the emotions, that there is a connection between the diaphragm and the emotions. So just as likely when we are breathing hard and fast using the chest, the mind is agitated. Um, But if we were to look at the cadence of the breath, the optimal number of breaths per minute is six. And the cadence will be a breath in for about four seconds and a breath out for about six seconds. So in terms of heart rate variability, an individual with high heart rate variability, they've got very good resilience. And as we get older, or as we become more sick, heart rate variability changes. Um, so we're using the breath, you know, again, with a high bolt score, the higher your bolt score, once your bolt score is over 25 seconds, you're more likely to breathe using your diaphragm, and you're more likely to be having more normal breathing volume. And also the respiratory rate is decreasing. So I'll give you an example. I was sitting in a football, um, they're semi-professionals, kind of they're not totally professionals, and we had about eight players around a, a boardroom table. And I was explaining what I was doing to the strength and conditioning coach. And it, within about one to two minutes, I looked at one of the players and I looked at his breathing. And I said, this is what it's all about. And I said, I, said, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to show you this. Your breathing now during rest is affecting you on a football field. That was within about two minutes. So how was he breathing? He was sighing. He was upper chest breathing. And he has dysfunctional breathing patterns, which, you know, it doesn't take a whole lot of training to see it. But I knew then that he was gassing out on the field. And after the meeting, the strength and condition coach came over and said, we couldn't believe it. Within about a minute and a half, you were able to pick up on this guy's breathing. And I said, it's normal because how could you have poor breathing patterns during rest? You can't automatically expect them to fix themselves when you do physical exercise. And physical training doesn't change your breathing. Because however you're breathing during rest, that's your functional breathing. That automatically carries into physical exercise. We need also to look at breathing. I noticed that um, in the field. Yes. At work with victims, witnesses, bad guys, Mm -hmm. my own guys. Mm -hmm. You can Mm -hmm. kind of always tell what state they're in by how they're breathing. Yes, yes. Or if something's about to happen. Yes, yes. And this is where resilience coming in, because if you're able to, to control the breath, but you have to have good breathing in the first place, you're able to keep the, the body in a state of focus, um, so you're less likely to, to, to make mistakes. So, yeah, it's, you know, strength and conditioning coaches will sometimes say that, the, well, the guy is gassing out too soon because it's lack of conditioning. But if you think in your field, all of your guys are training hard, why is it that some guys still gas out? It's not the training. It's their breathing outside of the training. Yep. The ability also to not, 
or the ability, I know it's all tied together, mm -hmm. but also the ability to mentally handle stress. Yes. It's like you have the, let's take a workout. You have, say pushing my brand new sled over here, my prowler. Pushing the sled, that is a challenge. That's it. That's your focus, right? That thing. And then you add another layer of mental stress. Say someone's looking and you're not sure you can be able to make it. Mm -hmm. Now you're stressing about that. You're stressing about, oh, I'm going to get embarrassed for my buddies over here. Mm -hmm. And so you're adding all these other layers. Now you yes. have a bunch of different challenges you're working on as opposed to just the actual act of what you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can you prepare for that? I think so. Oh, totally. You know, I'll give you my example. I talk for a living. And sometimes talking can be, you know, I'm talking to maybe 200 people, um, 500 people, and I'm talking for two hours. So I'm talking consistently that you've got two to 500 people looking up at you. And that was nerve-wracking. There was a few things that I used to do. I used to arrive to this situation, um, arrive to the, the seminar, and what I would do is for about 25 minutes, I'd close my eyes and I would bring my attention fully inwards to focus the mind. That no matter what sort of distractions were thrown at me, I was keep bringing my attention back onto the breath. And that focused me and it very much relaxed me. But then I would be too relaxed. Then I would do six strong breath holds to take me out of that relaxation, but to keep me focused and bring me into sympathetic. And also, if you do a strong breath hold, you increase blood flow to the brain. Now I'm ready and I go out and give my talk. And the other thing about it is that the more we do something, the less stressed we are about it. So six years ago, yes, it was always a little bit daunting. So I helped mentally to calm the mind before I went into the situation. But after I kept on doing talks, after a while, it's a normal routine. This is what your training is. Your training is that you are simulating conditions on the street and you're putting individuals through that by simulating it all the time. So therefore, when it happens in real life, the stress level isn't there as much because the body, you've done it so many times before. Yep. So that's what it's about. Yep. You have, it's stress inoculation, mm -hmm. but done right. You, done have, right, yes. you have to have healthy or, or productive or the right type of stress inoculation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it can go the other way. Sure. Cause you start, you start just like in anything, the, the way you're training and stuff is if it's a bad habit, then it's a bad habit. Yes. Yes. Now this is something we might have, I thought about starting off with, but just to kind of go over this and that is to, actually just explain to the listeners the structures mechanical structures of our breathing system mm -hmm. in a way to kind of paint the picture that it is like a uh, upside down tree yes, yes which i think is incredibly fascinating yes 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 and, and there's a whole idea there that kind of trips me out a little bit it's amazing the human lungs are absolutely amazing let's start with the upper airways yep so if you were say for example people think they look at their nose in the mirror and they think this is the nose that's only about 25% of your nose. Your nasal cavity goes well back within the skull. To give you an example, if you were to put your tongue up into the roof of your mouth, and what I want you to do is to drag your tongue along the roof of the mouth so you feel the hard palate, but keep going until you feel the soft palate at the back. The roof of the mouth is the floor of your nose. So your nose, the nasal cavity, occupies a lot of space within the skull. Your nose is designed to slow down the breath, to warm it, to moisten it, to regulate it, and your nose also is directly connected with the brain. You pick up nitric oxide, 
you carry that air and now nitric oxide is an anti-inflammatory and sterilizes the air you bring the airflow down through the, the pharynx the larynx into the trachea and then it subdivides into two branches so as you said it is like a tree upside down so you've got your trunk and then you've got two bronchi which are the two branches and then they split into mother daughter branches to generations 23 generations they then run into small little air sacs called alveoli and alveoli is a greek word it means a bunch of grapes so within the human lungs it's three liters with packed in into that three liters is 500 million air sacs people talk about you know on a hot day we're in california you have to protect your skin against the sun because your skin is exposed to the atmosphere and if you were totally naked the area of contact of your skin to the atmosphere is two meters squared but we also have to bear in mind that every breath that we take we are taking air from the atmosphere into our lungs and the area of contact between the air and the small air sacs is between 50 to 100 square meters our lungs are up to 50 times more exposed to the atmosphere than our skin and the human lungs you know for it to work taking 10 12 breaths per minute every minute every hour and also during physical exercise you know we can be exchanging 100 to 150 liters of air per minute during intense physical exercise and the musculature of our lungs um, and the lungs itself to be able to cope with that it's a remarkable organ so to, to, to paint the picture here, mm-hmm. the surface space yes. of your lungs, let's just yes. say the surface space of your lungs yes. that is making contact with capillaries, yes. right, yep. is the size of a tennis court. That's correct. That's 75 meters squared. So it's between... That's, that is if you're taking, a, if you're breathing, diaphragmic breathing into, if you're actually using your full lung capacity. Like if... Or we we're not we're not no, mouth breathing just, no, into a tennis no, court. Just, no, that's that's normal. That's just wow. the extent of it. The normal extent of you know because you have five hundred million small air sacs, and because the, the shape and the dynamics of them, you know that, that exposure to the small blood vessels, it's it's accepted. It's fifty to one hundred square meters. My mind is blown. Mm, yeah. Just makes it. I mean, just those facts alone really makes me not want to live in LA. <laughs> now I have all that surface space that introducing LA traffic and smog. Into- but then again, like if you're going for a run, breathe through your nose because oh, your yeah. nose is there as the filtering mechanism. Um, mouth breathers, you're taking cold, dry air in and you know, many people have bronchoconstriction. So they go for a really hard run and then they're wondering why do they feel that their, their chest is raw and inflamed? Your nose is there to protect the air coming into the body. The mouth doesn't protect it. I'm going to go back out a little bit to mm-hmm. the nose. Yes. Um, and I've done the uh, the tongue on the roof of my mouth before. Yes. I've actually taken my hands and stuck my thumbs in there and kind of kind of like felt my entire nasal cavity. Just to get yes. an idea. I'm like going exploring, yes. checking yeah. it out. Um, and is it turbinates? Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. So with inside the nose, you've got three turbinates. And turbinates would be, you know, I think people are familiar with the turbines. Mm. So you look up and they're swirling. So the turbinates are designed to swirl the air. Um, and by doing so, they're moistening and they're heating the air. And my point here is that as you breathe air into your lungs, 
the body has, an ex has expended an energy to condition that air before it comes into the lungs. But now when you have an expiration, you're breathing out warm, moist air. The nose needs to catch it. So the nose retains the moisture in the body. Whereas that's why don't breathe in through your nose and breathe out through your mouth. If you breathe out through your mouth, there's a 42% greater water loss. So mouth breathers are more dehydrated. But mouth breathers also, in terms of dental health, the mouth is dry. Um, so saliva is an anti-plaque agent. So mouth breathers will tend to have worse teeth. Now, another aspect of this, is, which is really interesting, I was reading a book called The Intention Experiment by Lynn McTaggart just fairly recently. It was one of those books, uh, you have it on your shelf and you kind of ignore oh. it and then you eventually come around to it. And she was talking about this anesthetist. Um, this anesthetist, this surgeon, sorry, surgeon, was, was carrying out operations without anesthetic. And he was using hypnosis, the power of the mind. And when I went on my journey back in 2000, I met with a Dr. Jack Gibson, and he had performed 3,000 operations, including removing breast tumors, but without anesthetic, only hypnosis. Now, when I was reading that book, the, the surgeon had one request, that you retained increased watery saliva in the mouth, because increased watery saliva in the mouth is telling the body that you're in parasympathetic response. I, if you're mouth breathing all the time, you don't have increased watery saliva in the mouth. Your mouth is dry. So is that telling the body that you're in fight or flight all this time? So not only is mouth breathing is going to cause fight or flight, you know, Stanford Medical School here, in March of 2017, they identified a new structure in the brain in the locus corollis. And they said that this structure in the brain is spying on your breathing. If you breathe fast, this structure will relay signals of agitation to the rest of the brain. And if you really slow down your breath, this structure will relay signals of calm to the rest of the brain. So fast breathing causes agitation. Mouth breathing dries out the mouth, so you're going to have agitation. And mouth breathing causes chest breathing. So there's three things here that mouth breathing is keeping the individual in fight or flight. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I have my mouth closed all the time. I'm breathing through my nose. But do you wake up with a dry mouth in the morning? If you are breathing through an open mouth during your sleep, you're waking up with a dry mouth. Well, there are six to eight hours that you're in fight or flight. That's why everyone's mouth gets all dry before an interview. That's exactly open, it. Right? Yeah. yeah, totally. So if you were in a situation that you were having an interview, slow down your breathing and retain increased watery saliva in the mouth. However, you don't want to be too relaxed either. That's why I personally do the strong breath holds then. Yep. So you, uh, should we not be cutting our nose hairs? Um, the, I think the protective, I wouldn't worry about that too much because you also have cilia and cilia are really fine like hairs which are in the nose and they beat it about a thousand times per minute. So it is true that the nose hairs in the front, you know, that they have some protective mechanism, but you also have a mucous membrane, you have cilia as well. So the protection within the nose, I think you're fine. Because I think I might, yeah, you know, I mean, I might take the loss on that one. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> uh, so also, so we've gone over the nose and gone into the lungs and to the capillaries. Mm -hmm. And just for educational component, uh, um, explain how the oxygen gets into the, the hemoglobin sure. inside the red blood cell. Yes. And then um, the, the, the density of that and the mitochondria and then eventually how it gets out of the red blood cell. Sure, sure. 
So basically then you have oxygen and the wall between the alveoli and the blood vessels is very thin. You could think of it as a piece of tissue, like it's porous. Um, and that allows a really tr efficient transfer of oxygen to take place. Now before I start, breathing through the nose, you're going to take the air deeper into the lungs and you also pick up nitric oxide as I spoke about. That's called ventilation perfusion. And you want a, a good ventilation perfusion is from nose breathing. And this increases oxygen uptake in the blood biologically by 10 to 15%. Now as oxygen passes from the lungs into the blood, 2% of the oxygen will dissolve directly in the blood. And coming back to the Wim Hof technique, when you do the hyperventilation, you will actually increase the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, but you won't increase the saturation of the hemoglobin with mm. oxygen. So 98, well, you can't, right? That's I mean, correct, because it's already almost fully loaded. So 98%, we, we, wouldn't, we, don't, we couldn't survive by just relying on the amount of oxygen dissolved directly in the blood. It's too little. So as a result, we rely on a carrier called hemoglobin. And hemoglobin picks up four units of oxygen. So you can imagine this hemoglobin in the red blood cell. Um, and, you know, it's carrying. So the oxygenated blood is being brought to your heart from the lungs to the heart. And then the heart then is going to pump this oxygenated blood around the body. So when the oxygenated blood then reaches the cell, a few factors that are, going to, are going to encourage the hemoglobin to release oxygen to the cell. One is increased body temperature. The other is carbon dioxide. So if you think of it this way, if you're exercising your muscles, the muscles, the exercising muscles need to get more oxygen. So how do the exercising muscles ensure that they get more oxygen? If you're exercising your muscles, your muscles are going to get hot. The increase of body temperature encourages the release of oxygen to that muscle, but also as you're exercising your muscles, you increase a lot more CO2 up to 10 times more CO2. So the increased CO2 and the increased temperature from the muscle is encouraging the red blood cells to release oxygen to that muscle. So again, it's the complexity of the human body. And people talk about a warm-up. Why do you do a warm-up? A warm-up is to facilitate the increase of oxygen delivery to the muscle prior to physical exercise. And I think it's very important. The basis of that, if you were to go in a little bit sciencey into it, it's called the oxyhemoglobin dis dissociation curve, the ODC. And you'll see a curve on the vertical axis is the SpO2 or SaO2, which is the saturation of your arterial blood with oxygen. On the horizontal axis is the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. It's a nest-shaped curve. If you breathe hard, the curve shifts to the left and hemoglobin holds onto oxygen. And if you breathe light or if you do breath holding, the curve shifts to the right and hemoglobin releases oxygen. And that's why we do a combination of breathe light to increase CO2 in the blood and breath holding also to increase CO2 in the blood. What do you think would be more beneficial, increase CO2 or increase hemoglobin? I think, you know, structurally, you can't really have needs. It's, yeah, we're talking about two separate things. We really do need to have adequate hemoglobin can you enhance it and here's a question that i'm going to put it out there but i don't know fully the right answer we have our spleen which um is our blood bank and our spleen contains eight percent of our red blood cells so but the the thing about the spleen is that the quality of the red blood cells in the spleen is very high so normally when an athlete will be aware of what's called hematocrit 
and hematocrit is the fraction of their entire blood that carries oxygen. So for a male, it's 40% to 50%. And for a female, it's 36% to 44%. But the quality of the blood in your spleen, the hematocrit is 80%. So you've really got a really rich quality of blood, um, oxygen-carrying capacity in the spleen. If you do five strong breath holds, your spleen releases these red blood cells into circulation. Now, it only lasts for about 10 minutes. And this is why we would also say pre-competition. I would have athletes do strong breath holds to increase their oxygen-carrying capacity. But also, as you do a strong breath hold, your kidneys become hypoxic. Your liver, to a lesser extent, and this will synthesize a hormone called erythropoietin, or EPO. So anybody who follows the Tour de France, they'll all be aware of you know, the guys in the motorcycle that were carrying the vials of EPO. And why would it take that? Well, EPO is a hormone that sends a message to the bone marrow to mature more red blood cells. So if we do strong breath holding, we can increase erythropoietin by 24%. And all it takes is five strong breath holds, two minutes rest, five strong breath holds, two minutes rest, five strong breath holds. You will increase your erythropoietin by 24%. And it takes about three days before the erythropoietin then matures the red blood cells. So the Tour de France, if I can remember correctly, it's 22 days of racing. So an athlete, say on the 11th day, you know, they really want to maintain their oxygen carrying capacity. Because if you've got improved oxygen carrying capacity, you've got improved VO2 max. So they would take erythropoietin artificially to mature red blood cells. But we can also do it with breath holding. Do you think somebody that... 100% dedicates themselves to doing the strong breath holds. Mm-hmm. Is there any way that they're, uh, that would show up in, a, in like a drug test or anything? No, but it's legal. So I had to check it out. When I was doing the research for the book, yeah. um, I had to check it out. So we, we rang, we were, we were in contact with, with anti-doping because we wanted to make sure that we weren't doing something. Um, and, you know... I think we can look at it this way. Athletes go into altitude training. So Olympic athletes, they'll tend to have altitude training camps and they expose their body to hypoxia in order to get those effects. And some of them live in altitude test tents and some of them go into chambers. So we do it by breath holding because not every athlete can, you know, can avail of either an altitude tent or even, altitude, yeah. you know. So yeah, no, but it's totally legal. Yeah. So you can do this. What you guys got to do, you got to, you got to live at altitude, train at lower altitude, do the breath holds, increase your bolt score, tape your mouth at night, and you're going to be good to go. Well, we see improvements when we're working yeah. with elite athletes. The margin of an improvement here is a half percent at that level. You know, it's easy to get gains with a normal recreational athlete because there's a huge potential. But when you think of it, Olympic athletes, they're not looking at breathing. They're not looking at diaphragmatic strength. They're not looking at functional breathing. They're not doing breath holding normally to disturb the blood acid base balance to get the body to make adaptations. Can we even get, you know, that fraction of improvement? And we yeah, that I mean, yeah, they're they're bleeding a little bit of power there. Yes, it's kind of like when I tell people that are like like lean but trying to get leaner. It's like the mo- the less weight you have, the harder it is to lose. Sure, that's it. And then it kind of yes. just comes into those little itty bitty things. Yes, yes. Um, just to go over again, mm-hmm. people's bolt score. Yes. 
uh, I've tried that just at like different times. I've, uh-huh. even, I've even tried, I've tried it, but I've tested my bolt score because it's really easy to do. You just need like a timer, right? Yeah. And, you and it doesn't take long. No, it doesn't, though. No. And I've done it, I've tried it after working out. I've tried it prior. I've okay. tried it after, just kind of like mm-hmm. uh, um, after a lot of coffee. Mm-hmm. And I tend, it's not as good. Um, yes. So some things will influence it. Yep. If you do a workout well, what I would say to you is measure the bolt score before your workout. Do the workout, but then me- wait at least a half an hour to an hour after you finish the workout before you measure it. You have to be sitting down for about five minutes and relax into the body. You know, don't care what happens. So basically, the bolt score is just giving you some, some idea of your chemosensitivity to CO2. Now, what does it mean? It's a measurement of breathlessness. That's what it means. So back in 1975, researchers were looking at this one in particular with Stanley Nishino in 2009. We've got recent papers from a Harvard medical doctor looking at it with sleep. But basically, your bowl score is giving you feedback of how soon do you get breathless during physical exercise and how breathless are you throughout your physical exercise. Now, there's a second score, which is not in the book. Um, We will have it up on our website because I'm just doing the videos and we're putting it up there. It's called the maximum breathlessness test. This is, you take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose, you pinch your nose, and you start walking in paces. And you hold your breath for as long as you can. And you count the number of paces that you can hold your breath for. So basically what we're having here is, we're having an athlete hold their breath for as long as possible. Because what I want to do is, I want to see, What's the maximum tolerance, the upper limit of their tolerance of breathlessness? So a good athlete typically will get about 60 paces, and that's it. But I want to get them from 60 to 100. So we have two things. Bolt score is measuring your functional breathing. And maximum breathlessness test, the MBT, that's measuring the maximum tolerance of breathlessness. So I have a question about the... Mm -hmm. Because I've also toyed around with the... Breath holds and, yes. and paces. Yes. Kind of like just like volume and cadence. What kind of, what kind of pacing are you we talking go about? To, you can go at a reasonably fast pace. Yeah, you know, fast, relatively fast walking is good. Yep. Just don't go into a run. That's the only thing. Yeah, see, so like it's a, a little bit different. Like, a, like you're walking, like you're trying to get somewhere, like you're a little bit late and you're trying exactly. to get there. Right. Yeah, that's fine. And it's a benefit to it because when you're walking, then you're going to be a little bit more distracted. So you'll tend to get... Uh, you know, a relatively higher number, but it's still relative. Like, you'll be surprised. You'll have MMA fighters. We measured a maximum breathlessness test with 40, 50 paces. Yep. And these guys are supposed to be able to maintain um, that ability within, within a fight. And you can improve that. Yep. And one thing I did notice that I started to just in the, you know, sense of competition and ego that I would speed up my walking just to get the steps in. <laughs> you know, it kind of like defeated sure. the purpose. I'm like, well, not really because as you speed up, your metabolism, metabolism yeah, okay. is going to increase. So you, you generate more CO2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll still get All up right. there. So. Um, the other thing I've, and, and I've heard you speak on a lot of interviews and the, um, actually just so you guys, I, I meant to bring this up earlier, the bolt score, a, bo- a body oxygen level test. Yes, That's the acronym yes. for it. Yeah. And so just to remind the people that aren't familiar. Mm-hmm. Also, you use the term breathlessness a lot. Yes. And so what, what exactly do you mean by that? What we're talking about is we're talking about the relative degree of breathlessness 
to get physical exercise. In other words, I'm concerned with an individual if they're breathing disproportionately, that they're doing a given level. Have you ever gone with a run with somebody and you're following your breathing, but the guy beside you, he's breathing harder. Yep. So both of you are doing the same physical exercise, but for the given level of exercise, the guy beside you has got disproportionate breathlessness. And that's when breathing kicks in. Yeah, it go, kind of goes what I was talking about earlier. I was like, we're battling the run. We're just that by itself. Mm-hmm. And then you add another layer of battling bad breathing. Mm-hmm. So yes. it's like that person has two battles going on. Yes, yes, totally. And the other thing is like, there is an energy expended by breathing. As we're sitting here talking, um, 2%, maybe 3% of our oxygen consumption is going to support the breathing muscles. If you go for a relatively fast walk to a jog, 3 to 6% of the oxygen that you're consuming is going to support your breathing muscles. If you do intense physical exercise, 10% of your oxygen consumption goes to support your breathing muscles. And if you do maximum intensity physical exercise, between 10 and 13%. So we need to think of the amount of oxygen that you're expending to support your breathing muscles. That's why we want to improve breathing muscle efficiency so that there's less of your VO2 is going to support your breathing muscles. And also, bear in mind, diaphragmatic fatigue. It's estimated that 50% of athletes that their diaphragm gets tired. And that's why individuals, you see them with training mask, with sports mask, that they're wearing a mask to add an extra load onto the breathing muscles to strengthen the breathing muscles. So the breathing muscles are less likely to fatigue because your breathing trumps everything. The body is very concerned about maintaining breathing. And if the diaphragm muscle gets fatigued due to an increase of metabolites, what happens is that blood is diverted from the, the legs to feed the diaphragm. And now the legs go jelly. So if you're looking at a race and the next thing is you see that the legs are wobbling, is it due to a buildup of hydrogen ion when the athlete has gone anaerobic? Or is it build, is it due to diaphragmatic fatigue? So it's also worth, um, you know, not just about improving respiratory muscle strength, but also improving breathing efficiency. Uh, I'm trying to figure out when I want to talk about the uh, vagus nerve. I'm very fascinated with that. And you know, it's not an area that I've looked at it very much, so the conversation on that is fairly limited. And it's one of those, I bought the books, but I haven't started going down that route. Oh, good. Because, I mean... I was going to use that as a link when we started talking about the <laughs> the, the mind, but uh, and also the body intelligence mm-hmm. and the intelligence of this incredible organic super system that we get to drive mm-hmm. around in for a little yes. bit that we don't give much credit to. No, well, in general, no. But I, I mean, I think we're getting there. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Um, you know, a, a concept there that I that I tell people is like, we don't have a skeleton, we're in one. Because mm-hmm. I think people put their con- their 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 consciousness sometimes is outside. Yes. As opposed to understanding that they're actually in the yes. skeleton. You yeah. guys that are yes. listening, you're in a skeleton right now. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Yeah, totally. And uh, is it because society is constantly taking our attention? You know, you've kids. I've kids. Um, you, you know, you're, you're, so much of our time is devoted to work, 
to family life, and then we have the distractions of modern technology. Everything is taking our attention. When do we actually sit back and give ourselves some attention? Because there's an intelligence that's in the human body that's conducting everything, and we can tap into that. All we need to do is to get our attention out of the mind into, into the breath, into the body. And I know it sounds a little bit new agey, but it's a tremendous thing because it improves concentration, resilience, determination, and also in sleep. Because sleep is a time that we should be switched off. Sleep is when we are going into parasympathetic mode to get deep sleep. But if we can't switch off, if we're go, 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 and the next thing is we can't switch off, we've got a poor night's sleep, well, that's going to be a stress and we're not ready for the next day. All right. Let's talk about the nighttime sleeping. Yes. I actually have my, uh, my Micropore 3M surgical tape yes. next to me along with this like pre-cut, softer, looks like a mustache tape mm. that is now available probably is going to continue to be available by a lot of different companies over time as this gets yes, more popular. Yes, For 20 years, we've been telling people to tape up. And now there are a number of specific tapes in the market. Um, that one there, the soft one, was developed by a dentist in Colorado called Dr. Frank Seaman. And he noticed that patients, he would repair their crowns, which are pretty expensive. Mm -hmm. A crown at home is about 800 euro. I'm not sure how much it is here. But he would repair crowns, but the people would be bruxing during their sleep. They're grinding their teeth, which is an indicator that there's a sleep disorder. He got them to wear the tape to prevent bruxing. And he calls it, it's called lip seal tape. But basically, when we're thinking about breathing, before I, I, I'll mention it now before I forget. Our tongue has got two places to be in. One, it's either in the roof of the mouth. And if it's not in the roof of the mouth, it's falling back into the throat. And if your tongue is falling back into the throat, we have a problem. Because a good airway is just the size of our thumb, 1.2 centimeters. So what we want to do is we want to have the mouth closed during the day with the tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. Because that then carries through to during sleep. You can't have your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth if you have your mouth open. If you try for it there, you know, open your mouth, maintain three quarters of your tongue in the roof of the mouth, and try and breathe through the mouth. So mouth breathers have their tongue in a low position, and that means that the tongue is falling back into the throat. Now, the incidence of sleep apnea. I'll give you a statistic. Um, once we're over 50 years of age, it affects 43% of males and 29% of females. Even over 40s, we're predisposed to sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is when we stop breathing during sleep. And if we stop breathing for more than 10 seconds, it's one apnea. But we can also have restriction to the airway. And this is the key. Nasal breathing will significantly reduce your risk of stopping breathing during sleep. Because when you have your mouth closed, your tongue on the roof of the mouth, you're opening up the airway. We want to have the airway as wide as possible. You know, we want to make sure that the anatomy of the airway is sufficient so that air can flow freely in and out of the lungs. Diaphragmatic breathing is also very important here because your diaphragm is directly connected with the muscles in the throat, which are designed to keep the airway open. Um, it's hard probably for people to understand sleep apnea. During yeah. wakefulness, we don't have to think about our airway because our airway stays open. But it's during sleep that the airway has a propensity to collapse. If your airway is collapsing during sleep, you're going to be tired the next day. 
so bottom line, if you tape your mouth, yes, you know what? I don't even like to say it's not necessarily tape, right? No, it's nasal breathing at night. That's However, tape is yes. a mechanism to yeah. support that. Yeah, I I tape, and I've been taping since 1998. People could say, well, surely, surely by now you've adopted nasal breathing, like I have. Um, when I'm on my flight now, I've got a flight for about 13 hours. I have my mouth closed, and all I'm doing is looking around people. You can imagine 300 people in a big room, mm-hmm. which is an aircraft. Their mouths are open, and all they're doing is sucking in everybody else's germs. So I have the mouth closed. But the taping for me, as soon as I put the tape on, bump, I'm asleep. It's just kind of a weird thing. Yeah, it's so like it's a little blankie. Little rit- <laughs> so it's, it's the little ritual, but it's just the comfort of knowing that, yes, your mouth is closed, your tongue is in the roof of the mouth, and you're going to have a deep sleep. So, I'm still fairly new at this. It hasn't, it's been a few weeks. Sure. And at first, of course, it's one of those things, it's skeptical and going, hmm, like a, like, like a boulder. So, I did it. And the funny story is I did it at night. Of course, my wife, you know, <laughs> thinks I'm crazy. But it was funny that when I put it on, I put it on too soon because we weren't like completely done communicating. Sure. <laughs> but I didn't want to take it <laughs> off. And so I'm sitting there like trying, yeah. to, trying to communicate. It ended up being a hilarious game where I'm trying to communicate something to her. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then she would articulate back to me what she thought I was saying. <laughs> and it was never anywhere near what I was saying. So it was kind of a fun little sure, game. Sure. Um, and just for the listeners, I mean, for, for you skeptics out there, I started doing this. Um, and now I, I look forward to doing it it's Mm -hmm. like it's like a no-brainer for me now i'm taping my mouth at night because Mm -hmm. i've noticed way too many benefits not to do it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean i i don't i can't really the only drawback if there i can think of is when i want to drink something in the middle of the night but see this is the thing the mouth is moist so you're less likely and the other thing is you're less likely to get up to go to the bathroom um and that can affect from a 20-year-old athlete right up to, it's oftentimes a man will come in to me and the man maybe 65, 70 years of age. And he said that he used to make frequent trips and he puts it down to an enlarged prostate. But we get him taping and we see it reduce. Yep. So, you know, that's an interruption. If you have to get up to go to the bathroom during your sleep, you're interrupting your deep sleep. You want to be deep and you want to be waking up feeling refreshed. So I use the like the micropore. I'll probably look into getting the uh, lip seal as well. It's a little bit softer. I've also seen one that have like a little bit of a little cut. So kind yeah, of like there's one as well, Somnifix as well, which is pretty good. Um, so there's a number of different ones. You'll see them on Amazon yeah. too. You know the one that I use and is super the cheap one. Yeah, like a month supply. The the one that traditionally we always use was 3M. That's the cheapest. Yeah, you yeah. know you'll you'll get a box for a few dollars. Yeah, I got. I think I got like twelve rolls for eight bucks. Yeah, it's very and that's cheap, gonna last yeah. me last me quite a some year. time. It was funny though. My when my 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 six year old came in in the morning, and I he didn't know have any uh, idea about it, and kind of woke me up, and he saw sure. it, and the look on his face was pretty funny. Uh, but now now when he comes in, I'll let him take it off because mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. it kind of like yeah, yeah. kind of tickles a little bit. Yeah, no, it's no, it's easy. Like somebody whose mouth's snoring. <gasps> that kind of vibration, mm. which is trauma, the tape automatically stops it. And, you know, in Ireland, people go to a clinic and they get P. So they get part of their throat and soft palate removed surgically because their mouth snoring, so there's all of these, vib- these vibrations. <sighs> and we're saying, okay, well, here's the choice. You can go and do a P, 
and you're, you're having something that's very invasive or you just simply breathe through your nose during sleep. Now, you can still snore through your nose. So there's turbulence inside in the, in the nasopharynx. <clears throat> so it's different. But what we want to do then is we want to bring down breathing volume so the person is breathing lighter and we also want to open up the nose so they're less likely to snore. So mouth snoring, we can stop straight away. Nose snoring, it takes a little bit of work, but we can improve that as well. So if you're a spouse of somebody, you might want to hook that oh, person huge. up with some 3M yeah, yeah. tape. And you know, this is going to come up like, how can you have a romance life and you're taped up? Well, if you're taped up, you're more likely to have the woman in beside you or vice versa. Right, right. Or it depends on where you're at in marriage. You totally. Know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so before I get into anything mind-related, just really quick, and I, we, we, we did this before recording, and this is something that I think was pretty fascinating because I've been toying around with Luckily, before you came, like now I still have a bit of a cold, um, but it's only been a couple days and it's almost already gone. Mm-hmm. But the nose unblocking yes. exercise, yeah. which I think is uh, a key and something that can be used by a lot of people almost mm-hmm. immediately. Yes, yeah. So there's a few different ways to do it. Rhinitis in this country, um, it affects between 10 to 30% of the population. 60 million Americans have rhinitis. Now, rhinitis means that you have a stuffy nose. If you have a stuffy nose, you're 1.8 times more likely to have a sleep problem. So when we're talking about a stuffy nose, we're not just talking about feeling uncomfortable breathing through your nose. We're talking about the effect it's having on your sleep. So to open up the nose, researchers have known this since 1923. And if you hold your breath, carbon dioxide increases in the blood, and it's probably carbon dioxide that opens up the nose. It's very simple. First of all, I'd say to, if you're pregnant, don't do the exercise. Um, if you've got high blood pressure, go pretty easy. And if you've got kind of any serious medical complaints, don't do a strong breath hold. You know, keep yourself within comfort. But if you're relatively healthy, push it. So to do this, take a normal breath in through your nose, a normal breath out through your nose, pinch your nose, and start walking. And keep walking and holding your breath until you feel a fairly strong air hunger, that you feel a strong sensation to breathe. Then let go, but make sure that you breathe in through your nose, because as you've held your breath, nitric oxide is pooled inside the nasal cavity. So when you let go, you want to carry that nitric oxide into your lungs. Then wait a minute and repeat it. In around a minute, wait, and then repeat it. Do it five times to six times, your nose should be open. Now, as your bolt score increases, your nose then is more likely to remain open. So the nose unblocking exercise, it will work in a cold, but your nose gets stuffy afterwards. Um, so what I'd say to you is just keep persevering with it. Even if your nose gets a little bit stuffy, just hold your breath then to open up your nose. You know, so it's a really good, you don't need nasal anti, you don't need antihistamines, you don't need nasal steroids. And the wonderful thing about the nose is, the more you use it, the more it works for you. I've seen people who are scheduled for turbinate reduction surgery. So their turbinates were enlarged and they went to their ENT, but the person was a little bit apprehensive about going under anesthetic. So um, they came to me and I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to have you do these exercises and I'm going to have you breathe through your nose both day and night for 12 weeks. And then you go back to your ENT. When the person went back to their ENT, the turbinates had shrank. They didn't need the operation. 
You know what? I think it also is a good thing to point out that this stuff does take attention. Mm-hmm. You little goldfish yes. out there, right? It does yes. take time, attention, and effort. Yes. And it could be perceived to you as discomfort. Mm-hmm. But these are all things that you could say are difficult, I guess, if for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. But so is working out. Yes. So is anything... Improving anything takes a little bit of effort. Yeah, totally. Right. And, you're, you know, what we're trying to do is we're establishing behavioral patterns. Um, it doesn't take 21 days to form a habit. It takes 60 to 70 days on the basis of neuroplasticity. What I would say to people is, you know, just make a conscious effort of being more aware about your body and whether your mouth is open or closed. Think about it this way. It looks intelligent even to have the lips together. If you go and Google mouth breather, find out what it says back to you. Well, basically it tells you that you're a stupid person. Now, in, on the basis that the individual wasn't aware enough that their nose was for breathing, but also if you're mouth breather, you're more likely to have brain fog. So your concentration is affected. So there might be something else going on there. Um, incorporate it into your way of life. You know, you, go f- you do your physical exercise, do a lot of it with your mouth closed, bring in some breath holding into it. Like, I know that people are going to continue with it if you find it easy, but more importantly, you get benefits. I guarantee you, you will get benefits if you're doing this properly. You will feel the difference very, very quickly. That's why I'm still doing it. Yes, and that's you know? it. And that's what motivates us. Yep. It definitely has improved my self-awareness and taught me how to self-regulate all these things. Yeah, great. Another thing I wanted to point out that changed with me, prior to taping, and I don't know what it is, maybe you do, prior to taping um, at night, I would wake up in the morning and always have to blow my nose. Yes. So that was a point that I meant to make, but I forgot about it. When you breathe in and out through your nose, when you breathe out through your nose, your nose captures the heat and moisture from the exhaled air. And it's the capturing of the heat and moisture that helps to keep the nose open. So when they did research with individuals, they had them breathe in through their nose and breathe out through their nose. And also breathe in through the nose and breathe out through the mouth. The individuals who were breathing out through the mouth were experiencing nasal congestion. Now, as you breathe through your nose, another thing that's happening is that you're harnessing nitric oxide. So nitric oxide, the concentration is 50 to 200 parts per billion when you breathe through your nose. But if you breathe through your mouth, it's only 10. It may be also that nitric oxide is helping to keep the nose open. And the third gas there is carbon dioxide. When you breathe normally through the nose, you've got higher end tidal CO2, and this also keeps the nose open. So to use your nose, you have to use your nose. Absolutely. That's what it's about. (laughs) So I'm going to shift a little bit, all right? And and something that I said on the show a lot, and I've said that your life becomes a masterpiece when you learn to master peace. Mm -hmm. Yes. So again, reading your book, when I got to later into, uh, I don't know, around page 152 or so, I was like, wait a second, you are a mental strategist. I was like, I was like you have warrior monk in you. There is, there is a peaceful warrior, a mindful warrior here. You're not, it's not just about the breath. Not just about the breath. Mm-hmm. And so another moment in your life that is not necessarily in your bios is when you were 24 and working at the rental car company. Yes. And then you took the, a course and... and personal development yes right yes and that was pivotal Pivotal. right yes and so that's one thing i do about the i've learned and highlight on the show is 
everyone has like a bio and resume, mm-hmm. but then there are like, where do you put this in your resume? But this yes. is such a massive yeah, totally. part of your life. Yes. Yeah. 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 And I suppose society, you know, so my experience there was I had a very agitated mind. Now I wasn't depressed. Um, not there's, you know, but I still had a lot of agitation and concentration. I would have been highly strong and I knew what affected me, but it, I didn't necessarily, if you have nothing to compare it to, you kind of accept, well, that's who I am. So I went to this talk and I was stressed. I was working for a company called Enterprise Rent-A-Car and I was one of their branch managers. I opened up the branches in Dublin. Then I went to Galway in Ireland. I opened up the branch and it was the first time the American company had come into Ireland and I was one of the Irish recruits um, involved with the expansion. So I had employees under me and it's not always easy dealing with employees. Um, and, you know, I just felt the stress of it and targets and everything else as many people are, are experiencing in, in the corporate world. So I had an agitated mind and I went to this talk in a hotel, two hour talk. And the guy, he must have been in presence. And I just sat there listening to him. And by listening to him, when I walked out, I walked down the street in Graft Street. It was the first time I actually seen the street. I seen the colors. I listened to the sounds. And I could feel the street. Now, I walked up and down that street many times. But before, I never seen the street because my attention was in my head. So I walked from one end of the street, normally, from one end to the other. I wouldn't even see the street around because none of my attention was in the present moment. It was thinking, maybe thinking of the past, anxiety about the future, but not actually living as life was unfolded. So that kind of two-hour experience in that when you're speaking to somebody, if they are in a degree of presence, and I can actually feel it as we talk, Mm. I can feel a presence coming up. And you'll often get that if you're talking to somebody, if they understand it, that we're transmitting as human beings an energy, and I know this sounds new agey and I don't want it to, because we can't explain it. You know, everybody is trying to explain everything in terms of science. There is so much going on that maybe we just can't explain it. Um, so that if you read a book that was written in presence, or if you're communicating with somebody that's in presence, or if you yourself is in presence, we're also transmitting that to another individual. So the guy who was talking there, he was obviously transmitting something to me. And I walked down that street and that gave me a taste of connecting with life. Because before that, I was totally asleep. Now, when I woke up, by the way, the next morning, my mind was agitated. But it planted something in me to start going down the whole route. And then by chance, um, I walked into a bookstore, found a book on breathing. And then I read a newspaper article, and that was about the importance of nasal breathing. And I think is when I allowed my mind to relax, that life started unfolding that bit softer, and ideas were coming in, helpful events were happening. So my life has been, I have to say, I'm so fortunate in that I found something that I love to do, but also I've had so many helpful events. Like the oxygen advantage, to give you the story on this one, I had written the book. It was 60,000 words and I'd spent a couple of years doing it and I've written eight books. So this was the more recent one. So the book agent went to a dental surgery here in California and he, he had asthma. So the guy, he goes in as a patient into his dentist and he sees this book called Close Your Mouth on the Counter. 
So he picks up the book Closure Mouth and it's about asthma. So he brings it, he borrows it, and he starts putting it into practice. And he's got asthma, he starts feeling his asthma is improving. So he contacts me by Skype, and I do a Skype session with him. And halfway through then, he tells me, oh yeah, he says, I'm a book agent. I said, wow, that's great. He said, I've just written 60,000 words. So I sent it to him. And he said, who is this aim for? And I said, it's aim for the general public. He said, it's too technical. You have to rewrite it as if you're talking to some guy down in the pub. So that's why I started rewriting it. I sent it to him, and he put the book up for auction. And you had the two largest publishers in the United States, Penguin Books and HarperCollins, bidding against the book. And this was amazing. This was, you know, by chance, he turns up at a dental surgery. He is a book agent for Nelson Mandela, for Richard Branson, wow. for Bishop Tutu. His name is Douglas Abrams. He brings out the most wonderful books. And I know that I'd have never connected to him if I just sent in the manuscript. Just helpful events happen, and I believe they happen when you're open to it. And again, how can we explain it? I don't know. But all I'm saying is, focus on your breath and just see what happens. So you found a still mind through meditation. Yes. Yes. Now, it's not, you will always have moments that the mind is agitated. But I think it gives you the ability, number one is to handle stress better. And number two that if you do get into a stressful situation, you're aware of what's going on in the mind, that you can recover that bit quicker. But certainly in terms of the mental and repetitive thinking, and psychologists estimate we have about 80,000 thoughts, 70 to 80,000 thoughts going through the mind every day, and 90% of them are repetitive and useless. But the thing about the mind, Scott, is the mind dictates our quality of life. Every experience we have on earth is filtered through the mind but yet we never stand back and ask how is my mind working we don't stand back and say what am i thinking about this what am i thinking about now am i thinking about the same old stuff somebody did something to me 10 years ago they did it once and i've never stopped repeating it to myself ever since you know an animal if an animal gets an injury the animal will recover very quickly And they won't dwell in it. But the human being has this, you know, habit of dwelling. And we need to pay attention. What are we thinking about? Because then we have the capacity to do something about it. Thinking is unhealthy. Too much. (laughs) No. Totally. As Oscar Wilde said, he's he's an Irish playwright. He says, thinking is a disease. And people die of it just like any other disease. And I have to say, our education is teaching us how to think. We're being trained how to reason, how to analyze, how to be critical thinkers. The mind is developed into this sharp analytical tool. We're being taught how to think, but we are not being, or we're not being taught how to stop thinking. We need also to look at the other side of it, to be able to quieten the mind, as you say. Yep. You have different, different types of thoughts going on. Yes. And I've, and I've mentioned this several times on the show, that our greatest battlefield is within our own mind. Yes. And yeah, you're going to get upset. That's the whole dichotomy of thought. You can't, you're not, you can't have just one way. But through self-awareness, you can create some self-regulation. Yes. And that's where a, a, a massive importance of breath work is. Yes. Because when it comes down to it, you have your thoughts and your breath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also to point out, you also have this super secret, like a... Uh, 
thought assassin that is negative, like it's, it's rooted in, in fear or rooted in grief mm-hmm. where you have this, I don't know how to articulate this, so bear with me, but there's a thought language that is always affecting you that is making you think about your imagination of a possible reality in the future mm-hmm. that is causing a physical manifestation yes. in you in the now. Yes. So I like to point that out to people so they can be aware of it totally. and not to let their imagination yeah. or their fear or their worry. Yes. Cause worry, this worry just keeps coming. It's worry, 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 yes. worry, worry, worry. And now you're physically creating tension. inflammation yeah. and tension within yes. yourself. Yes. The body doesn't know the difference based on nothing. If you, if uh, uh, you know, can the body determine the difference between a real event and an imagined event? A real event is something goes wrong. You feel stressed. But if you imagine about it, you also feel, the body feels that as stress. So that's why we have to be careful about what's going on in the mind. And we have to be paying attention to what are we thinking about. And when you notice yourself thinking about the same old thing, 20 times, 30 times, we have to make it, you know, a decision. Listen, we recognize now that it's not good, this train of thought. And bring your attention onto the breath. Yes, it's likely that your mind wanders off, but bring your attention back. Your mind wanders off, bring your attention back. Just create some space. I'm really worried and upset that I let my mind wander. Now I'm bummed about it. I messed this all up. I <laughs> tried really hard yeah. to do this. Yes, it's normal the mind is going to wander. (laughs) The the whole exercise is not to quieten the mind. The exercise is to pay attention to the mind. And when it wanders, and you know, there's times you could be off thinking about something for five minutes before you realize the mind has wandered. At least you've noticed it before you didn't. So now you're starting Mm -hmm. to notice the mind wandering to bring it back. That's what it's about. So here's a challenge or exercise for the listeners. Now, in that moment, you walk down a street mm-hmm. that you've been down a bunch, and then you, yes. it's like you actually saw color for the first time. Yes. You're using the, your sense of gratitude. Mm-hmm. So, I would say for the listeners, whatever street you're on, yes. walk, whatever you're doing, whatever, however you travel that street, you could be driving, no problem, or walking. Try to look around as if you're going to paint it. Or, yes. or smell the colors. Yes. Or, yes. Or, or, and listen. Yeah, yeah. listen yeah. to everything. Yeah. Close your eyes and actually listen. That's it. Pay attention to how the what direction the wind is going mm-hmm. in the trees and Yes. And just be completely in the now. And then you can yes. actually take that and then take it into your own body. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you can if you sit there and you focus, get your your, your breathing uh centered you can almost feel your own heartbeat. Yes, you can. And I don't mean almost, you can. Yes. And pay attention to how your arms feel. One thing I like to focus on is my hands mm-hmm. and how amazing they are. Mm-hmm. First of all, I'm very grateful to have them, especially sure. this here opposable thumb. This thing comes in handy. Sure, sure. But just the amount of capillaries in it, the mm-hmm. feeling, the heat on it, mm-hmm. the tension underneath it, mm-hmm. the tendons that are there. Mm-hmm. Like the in the the genius of the actual hand and then bringing the focus in mm-hmm. and then bringing it back out. Just, I don't know. It's like a nice little hard reset button on gratitude. And then it'll, it'll change the way you look at life. 
I think it's a great way to start. Um, I think for people to bring their attention into the inner body is actually to start in the hand. And even if you just were to close your eyes and to bring your attention fully in, into the hand and just to hold your attention there. Because once your attention is in your hand, it's not in your head. My issue was I spent 24 years with my attention stuck in my head. I wasn't communicating with life. I wasn't connected with life. Like you think as us as human beings, mm -hmm. two kids that come in, those two kids are still in the moment. They see, they hear, they feel, they're using their five senses in, connect, in direct connectivity with life. But at some point, we start developing more rational or more reasoning thinking. And now we lose our ability to connect with life and we live in our head. That's why some people say that we die at maybe the age of five, but we're buried when we're 80. And the reason that we die is because it's metaphorically that we're not living life because we're stuck in our head in our own little internal monologue. And you could think that everybody, you know, you meet people, you go into a shop or you meet people and they're smiling and they have these lovely white teeth. But if you were to take a look inside their head or anybody's head, you'll see that there's a lot of agitation that can be happening there. And that's the human. And this is going back a long time. You know, most spirituality was all, all about connecting with life. Um, going back to, say, if you were to look at Buddhism, Christianity, or any of the spiritual, you know, it was all about, you know, be still and know that I'm God. Be still and, and I'm not saying God as, you know, but because it's you have to be careful how you use the word but it's just to be still and live life instead of asleep and stuck in your head yep there's a uh that um zen buddhist um state of mind mushin okay. which means uh uh without mind it's perfect yeah and i see it in the kids all the time when yes. they're doing something that's what they're doing they're fully immersed nothing in the else. moment yeah they're, that's why i say they're like my little buddhas yes <laughs> totally and I'm gonna do. I'm. I'm gonna do what I can as a father to keep that in them, mm -hmm. or at least teach them and understand yes. the joy of play and enjoy of yes of not growing up. Yeah. It's a trap. Yes, it's a trap. Also, to point out the power of the breath, and this is something you wrote about. I think you did write about this, but you have like, like Victor Frankl said, you have uh, stimulus and response, mm -hmm. and in between the two is space. And that space can be expanded upon through breath work. And you can, there's, there, now there's room for you to see clearly. You can have time to make a decision, mm -hmm. evaluate things, mm -hmm. and then move forward. You're not, yes. It's not based on a stress response. Well, if you think of it, U.S. Marines, um, they, there's been several studies on U.S. Marines focusing on the breath for a half an hour per day. And it was only for six weeks. Like It's not for a very long time. And then they put them into simulated battlefield conditions they were able to cope better with it. If you think of Navy SEALs, these guys are sent into stressful situations to be able to think clearly and focused in that situation. And focusing on the breath is changing the, new, the neural pathways in the brain that you're able to remain more focused and calm when things are going wrong. And we spoke about that earlier on, mm -hmm. but it's not so much the length of time that you spend focusing on your breathing at any one time. I now don't formally meditate, but what I do is I will bring my attention into the, onto the breath and inner body, 
many times throughout the day. So I'll always try and, and I'm, I'm busy, you know, like I'm like everybody else. To, there's so much going on. But there's also times that we have some time just to give ourselves some attention. I took an Uber here. I just relaxed into the back seat, closed my eyes, brought my attention inwards. I wasn't going to do anything anyway. So I used it for giving myself some space. I go on a flight. I'm going to do the same for part of it. Um, you're standing in line at a bank. You can't do much. You might as well bring yeah. your attention inwards. We'll always have little, uh, little pockets throughout the day to bring your attention into the inner body. And this is creating the space between yep. stress and relaxation. I call that micro-meditating. Oh, well, that's super. <laughs> it's great. No, it is. Once yeah, you yeah, have it, you just kind of like, it's like you tap into it a little bit. Yes. And yeah. I've talked about um, doing that. Like a, a red light is a cue for me to do it. Yes. Yeah. Because a lot of times red lights can be stressful. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, nah, yes. I'm going to switch. Yes. I'm going to switch it on this red light. Yeah. Of or course, sometimes. you're stuck in a traffic jam. Yeah, exactly. And you know, if you're stuck in a traffic jam, it's almost as if you're, you're trying to drive to get close to the guy's bumper in front. And that's an ideal time that you could be focusing on the breath. And of course, we have to emphasize you're focusing on the breath with your attention on the road. But normally, you would have some attention on the road and the rest is stuck in your head. So we still want you to have attention on the road. But with driving with every cell of your mm-hmm. body, it's like going for a run. Don't just run with your attention stuck on your head. Run with every cell of your body. You're doing your physical exercise. Do it with every cell of your body. Sit with every cell of your body. Listen with every cell of the body. And then you're connecting with the inner body. On, the, on this last episode with uh, Julian Pinot, we talked about the nervous system at length, but also uh, the mind. Well, the brain and then the nervous system, but how the nervous system was developed way before the, the, especially the upper brain was. But the relationship of the mind is really the whole entire body. It's not just the actual brain housing system. And so you are an entire, you are your mind. It's not just mm-hmm. the old, the old uh, noodle, you know what I'm talking about. Sure, sure. Um, Greg Amundsen, who's another mentor of mine and heavily into the, the stuff as I am, he had mentioned, I want to say Dan Brule uh, mentioned to him that it just takes one, if you're mindful of one breath, then you have a breath practice. Yes. Yeah. So it could just start yes, there. Yes, totally, absolutely. And then being aware, if you're wondering if you, how to bring your, your thoughts and focus into your body, is pay attention to how the air is feeling as it's traveling yes. through your nose, down your throat, yes. into your lungs. Yeah. Um, you mentioned four spots, mm-hmm. I think, in the book, like the roof yes. of the mouth, yes, the throat. Yes, so we breathe. Um, yeah. We'll feel the most sensitive part of the body to, to feel air, the inside of the nostrils. So if you're looking at, say, meditation, Vipassana meditation, for example, which is a very interesting meditation, and they've brought it into the most toughest of prisons and they've had prison prisoners meditate for 10 days and it totally changed behaviors um first of all in india i watched a documentary recently on it i've done vipassana and basically we would just follow the airflow coming in and out of the nose for about three to four days yeah the mind wanders off you bring it back but you have noble silence for 10 days and at the end of the 10 days the mind is a that razor sharp you know, it's it's your your focus. So, no, wait, no, wait, no. noble silence. I think noble this is noble silence. Yes, noble silence. So this is going to be 
um, so kind don't. of kind of uh, entertaining. And that is, ah. you wake up at 5 a.m. and you just go right into meditation until you go back to sleep around 8 p.m. That's okay. It. That's exactly it. You don't for talk for 10 days. For 10 days. So you don't talk, you don't communicate, you don't have a mobile phone, you don't even have money. And there's something freedom about that. Do you so go you somewhere nothing. for that? Is that at home? Yeah, so we go, no, we, we go to a center. So in Ireland, they usually take over a school. So it could be a dorm, dormitory school. So you, you have male and females, but everybody is segregated. And you've got a guy ringing a bong outside your door at about 4.30. And you go out, you're just focusing on the breath. And yeah, it's like it's not it's not religious based at all. It's really just for the human being to bring our attention inwards. And for the first for the first few days, all you're doing is just focusing on that little part where the airflow comes into your nose. And that's it. And then you do you do different techniques thereafter. But it's a tremendous thing to do because we've lost our ability to do it. Our ancestors would have done it. Like if you think our ancestors would have been so connected with nature. We were living in nature. Nature is in total stillness. And we weren't go, go, go all the time. Yes, we were hunter-gatherers, but we would have always had times that we could connect with family, connect with the land. And, you know, it, we were really living there the way we should have been living, and we've lost all of that. Now the way we live seems normal, but is it that way? I really, I think that this... If you're mastering your breath is really the path to finding peace. Yes, I would agree. Um, and I would say to people again, you know, when I was giving courses on mindfulness, bringing in this, a lot of people with anxiety and panic disorders were coming in, but I would ask them, did you ever meditate before? And about 10% said they did. And they said, do you continue to do it? And it dropped. You know, why is it that people, the very people who would get the most out of following their breath, they don't. And I think it's because of the frustration that sometimes we feel that society is all about instant gratification. And now with Amazon, you know, and I'm not saying Amazon as a company, but just that idea. Nowadays, we can buy something at the hit of a button and it's delivered the next day. So our society is all about instant gratification. And the breath is not about instant gratification. It's about the, the goal of doing it, that you're giving, your, you're giving yourself some attention, that you're investing some attention in yourself. Now, back to your other question. The second place where you feel the breath coming in and out of the body is the back of the throat. The third place is chest, and the fourth place will be abdomen. But probably the nose is the best place to, place to start with. And I too, you know, when I started on the journey of following or bringing my attention into the body, I found that the easiest place to start was on the breath because as soon as you follow your breathing, you're taking your attention out of the mind onto your breath. But as soon as you bring your attention into your nose, you're also bringing your attention into the inner body and you're also bringing your attention into the present moment. Because if you think about how often, you know, are we with our attention fully occupied in the present moment? Most of the time we've got regrets about the past. We're thinking about something that we've done, we should have done, or somebody has done to us, or we're having anxiety about the future, you know. And if you go to a nice park and you're sitting down on a park bench and the sun is shining, are you really enjoying the park or are you thinking about and planning? There is a time for planning and there's a time for living. And that's what we want to do. And the breath is a bridge. Yes.
Totally. Well, I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about all this stuff. And I'm very grateful that I got you physically here. Sure. Lucky me that we're here and the timing worked out. Yeah, no, it's great. And I, I, to be honest with you, I had no idea how the conversation was going to, but it, it's great. I love talking about this stuff. Um, and especially the mind, because it's not always the easiest thing to talk about, but it's simple. But sometimes it's so simple that we're just overlooking it. And sometimes it's, it's about getting back to basics. Well, that's that, how simple and how complex it is. Mm-hmm is also why this that concept and the beauty of it is why I have this Enzo circle up here. Yes. It's the symbolism there. I also feel that now while like you're world renowned and world famous, right? I mean, yes. you're famous, but you're well known all over the world and you travel a lot. Yes. And you're talking about the breath. Yes. And like I said, I've read a lot of your stuff. I watched a lot of videos. I listened to a lot of your interviews. Mm-hmm. And I always, like, when it does come up, I always feel, I feel like I'm really hearing the passion about the mind coming from you. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my, that's where it's at. Sure, yes. But you're like, on the breath stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk mm-hmm. about nose breathing, taping, okay, for yes. the you know, billionth time. Yeah. But every now and then, there's like a little hint of it. Yes. I'm like, oh my gosh, go there. Yes. And they don't. Yes, yes. And so I want you to know, I notice that stuff. Mm. But that's because you're connected with it. So you're picking up on it. Um, part of the reason that I have the oxygen advantage, when I was giving the courses on mindfulness, they were attended by 90% female. Men weren't turning up. And I was wondering, like, why is the man not turning up for breathing? So oxygen advantage is about pushing the individual to harness not just the physical capabilities, but also to pay attention to the breath. So with Oxygen Advantage, the people who turn up are men, generally 25 to 40 years of age. Those individuals who want to push the boundaries, push their limits, and I'm sneaking in meditation in the back door. So yes, so there is a connection there. Um, And it's when you get people to do it, and then, because listen, what is performance? It's really about reaching our full potential. The mind is an important part of that. Yep. And I totally see that and I feel it from you. Mm-hmm. And that's why when I was reading, I was like completely excited for chapter eight. <laughs> and so I hope cool. people, I hope people, I really hope that, you know, if you guys read it or go and reread it, mm-hmm. that you pay really close attention to that. That's where it's at. Now, Obviously, there's tactics and stuff, but the meaning and metaphor and the reason why is goes above and beyond a foot race, mm-hmm. right? So, the oxygen advantage is it oxygenadvantage.com? Yeah, it's ox- oxygenadvantage.com, and it's in twelve languages too. So, if some of your listeners, you know, um, it's in Spanish and Italian, all the major languages, Japanese, Chinese. And apparently I have the, would you say the UK version? Yeah, you have the blue one. The, the USA version um, is white cover and it's got a kind of a picture of a mountain on the front of it. So I have no idea how your book has traveled a long way to get here. I told him it's another reason for me to get a, another one. But uh, I'm going to be passing this book around as well. But I highly recommend getting the Oxygen Advantage um, Amazon or you can order directly from the website. 
No, we, we don't have it. Like we have videos and all of oh, the okay, instructional okay. on but the book itself is is through Amazon. Some some bookstores, Barnes and Nobles have it here as well. Yeah. Other things that that there's a now there's a lot of stuff in the book that's not covered here. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the struggles that I have with doing a you now two hour podcast is to to be very selective on what information mm-hmm. I want to bring up, and that's yeah. why I have to be structured. Otherwise, we're not going to cover as much. Sure. So there's a lot of other stuff in this book that wasn't covered. One of those is you have a lot of good programming and protocols for people to uh, improve upon their bolt score, depending on what your bolt score is. Yes. So if you don't know what to do, there's actually like little worksheets and and programs to follow Mm -hmm. in the book. That'll help you. It's just so you don't just jump right into one of these exercises Mm -hmm. and just keep doing that, which, which is fine. I mean, the worst case scenario Worst, best case is start breathing through your nose. Yeah, that's where it starts. Right. Totally. Um, so love and respect and gratitude for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Really enjoyed it. Uh, you can also follow the Oxygen Advantage on Instagram. Yes. Not that you guys are like yes. I'm not the massive. Most yeah. I know you're not on there, but maybe you jump in every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you are going back to Ireland today? Mm-hmm. Uh, easy peasy, 13-hour flight, no big deal? Yeah, it's fine. Um, I'm kind of used to it. And for next year, there's a busy travel schedule. So I've got, we've got 25 trips lined up. Wow. And, you know, it's part of reaching out to people with sports performance. Yep. And then also for health in terms of dentistry and um, different, different modalities physiotherapists etc yep. putting it into practice well you're doing um amazing and very important work that goes above and beyond just breathing through your nose yeah i like was this. lucky i was lucky yeah but like like the circle up here it is simple and complicated <laughs> mm-hmm. and so i hope um i hope with this episode and and then your work people are able to remove that boulder from their thoughts absolutely put it into practice yep. you have nothing to lose and you've got everything to gain um, and a little announcement and some, some administrative stuff for the show is that we just released the strength is a choice shirt. So first like official CCUA t-shirt, and that is, um, available on the website. If you click on the store tab, just released, uh, if you're looking at it, it's based off this Excalibur sword that I have here. It's a drawing of that and it's wrapped with a olive branch. And so the idea in a simple way of explaining it, is that it takes strength to wield a sword. It takes strength to do battle. It takes strength to fight. It takes strength to, to resist. But it also takes strength and wisdom to know when not to. It takes strength to lower your sword. It takes strength to forgive. It takes strength to surrender. And in my opinion, that stuff is more powerful. So those are all, that little image is on the, front of the shirt is, uh, says strength is a choice in the CC way. So to go check that out and make sure to follow the show at the CC way on Instagram and on the website. And I don't do this enough, but if you guys listen and you like the show, please consider leaving an iTunes review. I'm not going to ask you to do five stars. I just want you to give an honest review, be honest with your feelings and, um, let, let other listeners know what you think of the show. Whether you say good things or bad things, either way, I'm going to feel the same. 
I have to take the highs and lows equal. Otherwise, I get too emotional. And I'd like to close out. Uh, before even closing out, let me just re- repeat my gratitude for you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. And not only thank you for being here, but also thank you for uh, giving me the skills and the knowledge and the awareness to not only self-regulate myself, but also to help regulate my kids. Because mm-hmm. they're going to have a jump. They're going to have a way head start on, in life yes. than, than I yes. did. And yes. so that's, that's trickling down through your work. So getting into the kids, I think it's that's very important. a very worthwhile endeavor. And to close out the show, uh, I'd like to close out with a quote from Muhammad Ali. It isn't the mountains ahead to climb that wear you out. It's the pebble in your shoe. And remember, health is wealth. Vulnerability is strength. And strength is a choice. You are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. So get up strong. Help others get up strong and be unconquerable. Thank you.